0: First of all, I'd like to thank all of you for coming to the session this morning. Uh, as far as I can tell, this is the best session so far today. <laughs> and for the conference, actually, it will be. So if you're here to see cool tools and technology used in, in water for food, this is the place. If you're not interested in that, you need to go out that door and down the hall probably, OK? But I think you're all in the right place, and we have some, three great talks today. The interesting part of this is we have a number of speakers in doing those talks. We're going to have six speakers with three different talks. So the first talk, we have the sessions a little bit different. Uh, do we have the slides up for the schedule at all? We, had a, we have an electronic schedule that I thought they were going to put some slides up. No. Okay. So technology is always a wonderful thing. You're always playing just on the edge. Uh, so, the printed schedule is outdated because we're doing with technology we can we can change things on the fly and the first talk today is, is as scheduled, we're going to swap the order of the last two. So we'll have two talks and then we'll do a break and then we'll go through the third talk and then after that we'll have a panel where all the speakers will be up at this table and hopefully we'll put another table. We do things on the fly here, we'll have two tables, six chairs. And then you can ask questions among the, of the, about the panel members, maybe between the projects. But you'll also have the chance to talk with, to ask questions after each talk. All right, so in the first, first talk that we have, there'll be actually be three speakers and they're going to switch between themselves. They'll, they'll go through the, the, uh, the imagery and, and talk about the project and then, and then at the end they'll talk about the technology that's driving that, that project. And then you'll have a chance, about five or 10 minutes, to ask questions of that project alone and we'll switch to the next talk, same kind of a thing. There'll just be a single speaker for that. Okay? Does that make sense for you guys? Okay, so the, the order is, I think we have about 55 minutes for the first talk, then we're going to switch and go to the next speaker, and I think we had 35 minutes. John, is that what I told you? 40? Okay, he just negotiated five extra minutes. And, uh, and then we'll have a break, and then we'll go to the third talk after that. Okay? So, uh, oh, here we have, we have a slide with my name on it. Can we go to the next slide? Or maybe I can control that. No. OK, well, anyway, <laughs> we'll switch just to, to the next talk and go on, OK? Uh, let's see, uh, here we are, very good. OK, so this is what I was trying to describe to you. Um, and I think the order of the speakers even is not in this order. I think that Mike Farrell is going to start, and then Mike Forsberg, and then um, Ian Cottingham on the, on the first talk, OK? Mike, please welcome Mike Farrell. Good morning,
1: so we need our material up first, please. Uh, I suppose all of you folks uh, took a shower this morning or brushed your teeth or had a glass of water, and uh, for those of you who are from not around here, that water came out of the uh, Platte River. Our project is uh, called the Platte Basin Time-Lapse Project. And as soon as we get our first image up here, we'll be able to show you a little bit about what that is. There we go. Okay, so the Platte Basin Time-Lapse Project is our attempt to put out time-lapse cameras up and down the Platte Basin that shows where that water comes from, how it's used, and where it goes. Uh, But before we get into the actual imagery of that, I'd like for the sake of people who are not from around here to do a quick... History lesson on how the Platte Basin got to where it is today and why this is an important river to be looked at in a particular way. So we'll go on to the next slide. In uh, the turn of the last uh, century, in the 19th century, we bought the uh, Louisiana Purchase. And shortly after that, Lewis and Clark came upriver. They stopped off at the mouth of the Platte and they found out that it was too shallow. They couldn't go upriver. This was in an era when most goods and services in this country moved by boat. They were looking for a water route out west. Next one. So Lewis and Clark didn't find any value in this area. The next person that came out here of any importance was Stephen Long. He labeled this whole region a great desert and that sort of set the tone for the development of the great American desert, the Great Plains, for the next 30 or 40 years. But quickly, we learned that we could take wheeled vehicles up the Platte Valley because it's a broad, shallow prairie river and it's uh, got a lot of water and grass at certain times of the year. And so you could take oxen-powered wagons Cross-country, the fur traders and the fur trappers went first, followed by the uh, westward pioneers, people going to California, Oregon, and uh, the Great Salt Lake. And one of the first proponents of this central route west was a man named Charles John Charles Fremont, later known as the Pathfinder. He published a, an important guidebook, hundreds of thousands of people bought that guidebook and used it as their way across the west, and they came up the Platte Valley. The next person of great importance in the development of this area was Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln was the second Republican candidate for president, the first was Fremont, little known fact. Uh, When Lincoln signed the Pacific Railway Act in uh, 1862 and the Homestead Act, he changed the way we thought about this region because now there was a a system for getting goods and services into the West and uh, he was encouraging uh, a northern style industrial agriculture to take place in this part of the country as opposed to a, an agrarian uh, agriculture that was uh, uh, based on slaveholding, which was one of the causes of the Civil War. So once we had the railroad in place and the Homestead Act in place we had a way to create a, uh, an industrial style agriculture in this part of the country. The next big thing that happened was settlement. People came out here and, and made farms. It was a particularly wet period during the 1870s, or 1860s, 1870s and then it got dry and people started to pack up and leave. That happened a couple of times before the turn of the century. We ended up with the populist movement in the 1890s that was fueled in large part by the drought. Uh, Next slide, please. So one of the responses with the federal government, if they have the power to build a transcontinental railroad, they also have the power to control rivers. They built the first uh, big dam on the Platte system was the Pathfinder Dam, named for Fremont. Over the next 30, 40 years, we built a number of other dams on the river. And uh, developed a um, surface water irrigation system. The river was no longer a natural system. This was a big turning point. Now we were controlling the river. And then in the 1940s, we developed center pivots that allowed irrigation to move out of the river valleys and up onto the benchlands. We were dipping straws down into the aquifer. Next one. But as all things, there was controversy over this. Uh, Rachel Carlson published Silent Spring. Um, concerned about what was happening with wildlife and their demise, uh, partly in response to uh, chemical agriculture. And then about a decade later in the early 70s, Richard Nixon signs the Endangered Species Act. You're probably wondering what has this got to do with the Platte River? We'll find out in two seconds. The second big case that was brought as a part of the Endangered Species Act was um, a case dealing with whooping cranes and a dam that was being proposed on the Laramie River, which is a tributary of the North Platte, the uh, Gray Rocks Dam. That court case was settled uh, and allowed the dam to be built obviously, but it also created the incentive for mitigation to take place on the central Platte Valley in the habitat that was important for cranes in their migration. Then uh, a few years later, Lake McConaughey-Kingsley Dam was up for relicensing. That triggered uh, a multi-year, it was about 17-year legal battle between Wyoming, Colorado and Nebraska, the federal government and wildlife organizations over how to manage the plat for uh, habitat. And that led to the development of the Platte River Recovery Program, the cooperative agreement that we're now operating under today. Um, I'm gonna now switch gears and talk about Mike Forsberg and the Great Plains. Mike and I developed a documentary that looks at this and a number of other issues on the Great Plains, and we produced that for public television. I'm gonna show you a three minute clip of that. We'll give you a little bit more insight into the Platte River, and then we'll get Mike up here, and we'll talk about time lapses.
2: I was born and raised in Nebraska, and have been working as a wildlife photographer in the Great Plains for nearly 20 years. Early on, my goal was to make pretty pictures. Because I think pretty pictures are important, especially of a place that is not so well-known. But I've also learned that pretty pictures can be a trap. Because they don't always show you what is happening just outside the frame. The Great Plains help grow a country. It helps to feed the world and, increasingly, it is being asked to fuel our energy needs. But now, these same grasslands are among the most altered and least protected regions on Earth. There is a growing concern that the wildlife they still harbor and the natural resources we all depend on are being stressed and stretched to their limits. In the Great Plains, that story begins with our most precious resource, each spring over half a million sandhill cranes the largest gathering of cranes anywhere in the world converge on the Platte River Valley in south-central Nebraska here and in the neighboring rainwater basins another 20 million migrating waterfowl shorebirds and the rare and endangered whooping crane come to rest and refuel Packing on weight and nutrients, they'll need to finish their migration and be successful at the nest. These birds travel along an invisible north-south aerial highway, called the Central Flyway. Early explorers and later geographers tried to define the Great Plains from their perspective on the ground. Over the years, many definitions and boundaries were proposed all of them saw a vast region of grasslands interspersed with eastern flowing rivers and a fabric of wetlands. Cranes have been gathering in the Platte Valley since the end of the last ice age. But today, it is a very different river. It has been dammed, diverted, and altered to serve our needs. white-braided channel has been reduced by 70 percent in the last century biologists realized that the river no longer functioned for wildlife like it once did humans now had to take over clearing sandbars free of vegetation controlling invasive species burning prairie and protecting what was left what has happened to the Platte River has also happened throughout the Great Plains.
1: Okay, so while Mike and I were out spending about a year and a half traveling up and down the Great Plains, we came up with this idea. Wouldn't it be really interesting if we were able to time lapse an entire watershed? And so uh, we developed a proposal. We took it to our friends at the Cooper Foundation here in Lincoln. They gave us some funding. We took it to Ronnie Green at the Institute of Agricultural and Natural Resources here. They gave us some money. We took it out to the Platte River Recovery Program. They gave us some money, and we went to Nikon Camera, and they gave us cameras uh, at a very low cost. And we're now in our third year of... uh, having cameras on the Platte. We've got right now about uh, 40 cameras placed at various key locations up and down the Platte River. They're taking photographs one hour, uh, uh, every hour of daylight, uh, and we bring those camera uh, images back and create time lapses out of them. So now I'm gonna introduce Mike Forsberg to come up here and he's gonna show you some of the work that we've been doing over the last couple of three years and talk about where we're headed with this project.
2: Thank you, Michael. Good morning, everyone. Um, Working as a wildlife photographer in the Great Plains for the last 20 years or so, the thing that I get told told most when I'm out in the field is, you should have been here yesterday, Mike, or last week or last month or last year. And now we sort of can be in a way because we're putting these time-lapse cameras throughout this entire basin so what I'm gonna do in the next several minutes is just sort of walk you through some of the, some of the locations and show you some of, these, some of these images crunched together in time-lapse. And Stephen, behind the curtain there, we're rolling through some, some pictures. And the first picture, I don't know if you can go back, Stephen, or not. There we go. So Michael said we have 40 cameras roughly right now up and down the basin. Now the, the Platte Basin is 90,000 square miles. So it takes up parts of three states, and it's roughly about 900 miles from top to bottom, and spans roughly about 13,000 vertical feet. So the highest camera that we have in the, in the Platte Basin watershed is here. This is at Lake Agnes. This is at about 11,500 feet. It's the headwaters or near the headwaters of the North Platte River. So we have a camera up high in the mountains, in the rock and ice. The next picture. We have a camera in the 20,000 square mile Sandhills region in north central Nebraska. In fact, we have four cameras there. This one is on uh, the upper reaches of the North Loop River in southwestern Cherry County. Next. We have one down on the Central Platte River. In fact, we have several on the Central Platte. Um, and this one is looking at a, a wet meadow, which is hydrologically connected to the Platte River, uh, which is about a half a mile uh, away from that location. And then clear down on the other side of the basin. So you remember the one from Lake Agnes up, at, up up in the mountains. Well, this is the one that we have that's furthest east. This is at the confluence of the Platte and Missouri rivers, right down near Schilling Wildlife Management Area near Plattsmouth, Nebraska, just south of Omaha. So the water that you see in the background there is where the Platte River and the Missouri River come together now. Um, I'm up on top of the ladder there um, looking at uh, the camera's view, and Neil, who's, who is holding the ladder, has his, has his hand out, and this was in uh, May, I believe, of 2011. Uh, 2011 was a huge water year in the Northern Plains, if you folks remember, a record-setting year for, for water two months later, where Neil's top hand is on that ladder, that's where the water ended up being. That's how high that water rose in just a couple months, and then it dropped way, way down by late September. So let's look at some of these. Well, before we do that, you see this, I hope I can, can you guys hear me as I walk? So this is is what one of the cameras looks like. This is a, a prototype, but this is a Nikon D300 camera. It's a digital SLR that, that takes really great photographs, and this camera is in a waterproof housing. We've made this one clear so you can see the guts that are inside. It's powered by a solar panel that feeds a battery. The battery feeds a microcontroller, and the controller takes over the brains of the camera and tells the camera what to do. So that's how this whole system operates. Now we've got them mounted in all different sorts of ways as you've seen. We've had, we have them on, on fence posts and we have them on posts we've put into the ground. We have them on cliff sides. Uh, we have them in all these different locations. But this is, this is the where, where the rubber meets the road for this project. Without these cameras and the development of technology with our technical partner, Jeff Dale, none of this would have happened. So let's look at some time lapse videos that we've put together. I was talking about 2011 with a high water year. Well, in 2011, the Rocky Mountains of Colorado were at 240% snowpack. And this is at Lake Agnes, and what we're going to do is we're going to watch the water move down these series of dams and reservoirs from the headwaters of the North Platte. So just imagine these as a series of bathtubs. And when the first bathtub gets full here at Semino Reservoir, then it spills over and it lets out below in the spillway there. Now we're gonna see it move from Seminole Reservoir and the spillway down to the next dam, which is called Cortis. And Cordis feeds electrical power to the towns of Casper and other communities in Eastern Wyoming. We're gonna see this water rise up and as this water comes down, it's gonna be dumping into Pathfinder Reservoir, which as Michael talked about uh, was completed in 1909. It was one of the first um, structures to to be made for irrigation in the American West. And only four times in its whole history has it spilled over. And we were able to record that spillway, that, that spill for, for, for the first time ever in, in time lapse. So we're seeing it come over the spillway into Fremont Canyon here. And this lasted for about Two and a half months. I've never been to Niagara Falls in New York, but the, 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 the sound and the spray and the rainbows and all the bird life was just absolutely amazing. Well this is what it looked like three months later. That's what it looked like five months later. And I think we have one more slide. And if you'd go, if you'd go to Pathfinder today, that'd be about what it looks like. Okay, let's go to the next time lapse. We're not just looking at man-made structures in time-lapse on the landscape, we're also looking at natural environments. So our our stair-step of habitats going down from alpine to subalpine to montane to sagebrush, to short grass prairie to mixed grass prairie to tall grass prairie and river floodplain. This is just looking at Jack Creek, which is a tributary of the North Platte River. It's a mountain stream and we're watching snow as it goes away over time. So it's almost like you're stepping into a time machine and watching this unfold. We in this project right now we have roughly a quarter million images. We've been at it for two years and we can't show you a quarter million images but we can show you little slices of those and make time lapses based on what stories we want to try to tell. And so here we're looking at a natural environment undergo its cycle of the seasons. And we know there's both moose and bear in here, so one of these days we're going to get one moose or a bear standing on one of those rocks. I I guarantee it. Let's look at another process on the landscape. This is on the Central Platte River. When we put this camera in place, it was 15 feet away from the bank. This is near Overton, Nebraska. But over about a year's time, look what happens to the bank and its erosion as it moves away. This is something we didn't expect to see. When we went back out there... A few months ago we had to move the camera because at this point it was only six inches away from the bank. And now we've moved it a couple hundred yards downstream. But it shows process of river unfold. And this is one of those things then that we can tether a lot of research to as we start to study. And you have to think about these pictures aren't just pretty pictures but there also can be visual data. Let's look at another one. This is sort of showing you time lapse three ways if you want to use a cooking metaphor. So this is the Durr restoration. This is a restoration project where uh, organizations are taking a sandpit lake and they're regrading it, pulling it back, recreating a slough in, in uh, the south channel of the Platte River and planting prairie. So what you're looking at now is a, this is basically looking at a picture almost every hour for two weeks in the first stages of this, of this restoration. And this was, last, this was last year. So that's one thing you can do, is you can take every picture of daylight for a period of time and put them together and show it. Or you can take pictures out and just extract them one little bit at a time, sort of like a flip book, where you can just show process, like, a, like almost like a, like a rolling slideshow in this manner. Or you can take, this is a picture, this goes over two year period where we're taking one picture every day out of the library of images and putting together to create the time lapse of this restoration. There's an awful lot of conservation work being done on the Platte River and the Central Platte River, restoring prairies, restoring river channel, um, dealing with invasive species. So restoration process and seeing it unfold in the landscape is very important because it's not just a bunch of numbers and graphs, it's actually can see it. How about agriculture? So the Central Platte River Valley is, is irrigated. Um, next to the river primarily um, by pipe irrigation here we're gonna see a two-year corn soybean rotation soybeans first all in about 35 seconds here it's the fastest harvest you've ever seen in your life (laughs) wouldn't that be nice that water that irrigated um, the beans last year in 2011 and the corn that you're gonna see come up here in 2012 The river water is about 200 yards away uh, to the left of the screen on the plat. And this is right next to Audubon's Row Sanctuary, if any of you folks are familiar with where that is. So, yes, you actually can watch the corn grow. It was pretty fascinating stuff. Now let's go up above. So this is about 500 yards away from that crop field, and this is on a research tower at Rose Sanctuary looking down at sort of the big bend reach of the plat. Um, This photograph here was taken in 2011 when that big water year, when all the snowpack was running down from the mountains and we had above average precipitation in the Western Plains. Now let's look at the next picture in 2012 from the exact same time frame. Can you flip back one, Stephen? and then flip forward. Same frame. Let's watch it unfold over time. So for these cameras, what they're doing is they're providing us a view um, in a way that we've really never seen before. I mean, we've seen the view, but we've never seen it in motion. And is in a tremendously Incredibly powerful tool. It's a great communicator because it's an international language. You know, it doesn't matter where you come from or who you are. It's it's there. It just it witnesses to what's happening on the landscape. Many of you are probably familiar with Jim Balog's Extreme Ice Survey um, that has looked at the retreat of world's glaciers uh, over the last several years. It doesn't matter where you come out on climate change. But the fact of the matter is they're retreating faster at a faster rate than they ever have in the history of of our knowledge. And all you have to do is see it, you know? So we're trying to do that with a watershed. Let's look at another picture from up here. There's things that we can see. Watch the sandbar movement. You can see, I don't have a pointer with me, but watch this movement of sandbars underneath. This its like a big conveyor belt of sand that's coming down. This river is alive. It's breathing. This is the lifeblood of our state, of our region, of this basin. So we can look at things like that, or we can look and watch a crane roost over time, just build, every night the roost builds differently in March and early April when these birds are coming through based on what the water levels are and how the sandbars are underneath. This is a wet meadow on the Platte River uh, near Mormon Island. This is something that Stephen has put together, one of our staff members on on PBT. Uh, this is a, a composite view, uh, panoramic uh, from six months ago, and then you can go forward, and then six months later. Let's look at this wet meadow in action. So these wet meadows suffer the same sort of um, quality as a lot of our grasslands. They're not sexy landscapes at a glance, you know, they're not the mountains, they're not the ocean, they're not the Grand Canyon. but they have this tremendous beauty and they're they're alive. But just looking at them at a glance, they don't don't seem like that. But if you watch them over time, look at this thing, change through the seasons, watch the prairie change, look at the river rise and fall. I mean, look at the water that's connected to the river rise and fall. See cranes come in and use it during the day, those quiet periods during the day. And watch it change over time. 75% 75% of our wet meadows in the, in the Platte Valley are gone. Mormon Island is one of the last strongholds for a big, intact grassland. How about the sandhills in Nebraska? You know, Mike Kelly spoke very eloquently about the sandhills that are his home yesterday. Here you can see the cycles of the season. We, th- we thought, let's put one on a windmill, stock tank. It's, it's you know, the, the, the classic scene in the Nebraska sandhills. But look at all the things that you can see. Watch the water rise and fall in the stock tank when, when they plug the, the, uh, the windmill back in, when they hook it back up. Watch the grass come up. watch when cattle come in, and see all the changes over time. and you see the windmill spinning and spinning around. That cues you with weather. And where are weathers coming from? Now, all the water, most of the water that comes out of the Sandhills in Nebraska feeds into the Platte River near Columbus and creates what's the lower Platte that we're looking at here. And this is down near South Bend between Lincoln and Omaha. And let's look at, at this water over time from 2011 to 2012. All right, these are, these are actually, yeah, that's, sorry. Stephen, go back one. So on June 24th, 2011, there was 21,500 cubic feet per second of water coming down. May 22nd, 2012, there was 4,300 cubic feet per second. August 27th, 2012, when we were in the grips of the drought, there was only 550 cubic feet per second coming here. So this shows you that we can start tethering other data to this visual data. We can start, you know, climate data, USGS stream gauge data, water quality data, all those things. So we're beginning to work with researchers in this project in that manner. Um, Let's go ahead and watch this unfold. You're gonna see little birds flying through the the frame here soon, there they are. Those are cliff swallows. Where we put our camera underneath the bridge happened to be a cliff swallow colony of about 100 nests. So these cliff swallows are the swallows of Capistrano. They're the ones that that fly across the peninsula um, you know, between Mexico, and, or between Central America and South America. And they come here in May, and then they leave in August. So we've worked with Mary Bomberger Brown at the University of Nebraska to start studying cliff swallows, which she's an expert at, and see how they adapt and improvise in these bridge systems, as opposed to their more native sorts of habitats which are cliffs on, on hillsides overlooking rivers and lakes and other features. So what we've come out with on the other side of this is, is, is one deliverable, which is the Platte Basin Time-Lapse Project website. And you know, you look at all these pictures and you say, you know, we have 250,000 images, we're probably going to have a million in another, <laughs> another few years, so what? Well, the so what is, is, is we're now gonna build content out and try to tell stories. And we're gonna work with educators and we're working with researchers and so forth to bring the Platte River to life in ways that have never before been realized. And what we're really trying to do is try to build community around a watershed. That's what we're really trying to do. We're trying to pull up the political boundaries and all the straight lines because nature doesn't know any straight lines and to build community both through the ecosystem but through people, whether or not they live on the Front Range of the Rockies, or they live in Broken Bow, Nebraska, or they live in Ashland, Nebraska. It's trying to work all this stuff together. Um, so Michael, do, do I have anything you like to add on this? I'm going to break my microphone. Uh,
1: one thing we want to make sure to do is to acknowledge the role that we're, that we're uh, we're involved with direct teaching as well, uh, so I'd like to introduce the students who actually built all these time lapses. We have a number of interns that are working with us. Would you guys stand up, please? So one of the things we're doing is creating opportunities for younger folks to get involved with this kind of storytelling and this kind of technology. All these time lapses that you've just seen here were hand built by these folks out of this collection of images that we've that we've uh, created, and then along with that. We've uh, developed some partnerships for some grant possibilities. We're trying to extend education outwards from uh, what we're doing right here all across the country. And that's what Ian's gonna talk about. But we have a, a grant proposal out to the National Science Foundation that will allow us to take all of these images that we've collected and make them available to school kids all around the country. They will be able to build their own time lapses and tell their own stories
2: with them. And that's what Ian's gonna talk about next. So we look at this as a template that can be applied to any watershed anywhere in the world, large or small, and uh, now, the real, now the real deal comes up here <laughs> and it's, shows the next step.
3: I don't know that if I'd say it's the the, the real deal. What uh, what I'm about to talk to you about wouldn't exist without the the data and the photographs. So one of the things that uh, you know that we see is, is you can tell a very powerful story with the, the, the kind of photographic images that, that you've been looking at and, and the, the, the time-lapse video that's created from those images. And, and it creates an interesting challenge from the standpoint of, of how is it that, that other people can tell the story? And Mike uh, sort of alluded to this in terms of talking about building communities around the watershed and around the, the images and the data that can come out of the watershed. And building a community with that volume of data tends to create what we would call big data challenges. Um, and, and for computer scientists like I am, uh, big data challenges aren't anything new. They're, they're fun. And it's, Something that we do all the time, and data is data. But when we look at the kind of data that this project presents us with, very impactful data, the the, the images, um, you know, anybody can look at those and, and know immediately, you know, what's going on with that. You, you can see the water level, level rise and fall. And so, as a computer scientist, that was something very new for me. Normally, when I look at data, I look at tables and. Uh, you know, it's 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 fairly meaningless until you you understand and, and dig a little bit deeper. So we were tasked with doing a prototype for the this grant to create something that we call the Focal Stream project, and it was developed in the design studio at the Rake School. And what we wanted to do is we wanted to create a prototype software system to allow anybody to manage this data and work with this data. And so where we started is we started by looking at the data itself. So we have the photo set, which as it is right exists right now in our system in the system that I'll show you in a couple of minutes. We have 123,687 photographs. Um, these are all really really, really high resolution images. And so that creates a challenge in and of itself, which is how is it that you deliver this kind of data set in a usable way that's meaningful for users? How how do you deal with the problem of bandwidth and the problem of getting access to the data? Um, This spans two years, and the dates are up there. We have 21 camera sites that we're looking at. We have over 300 gigabytes of images, and we have 15 million tiles that are generated from these, which is a massive amount of image data. And when I say tiles, it doesn't seem like, well, tiles, what are tiles? Well, one of the ways that we solve some of the data challenges to make this deliverable and make it something that people can get access to is we don't deliver photographs. We don't deliver the images coming right out of the camera. That, that would be very difficult, and it wouldn't perform particularly well. So we use a technology called Deep Zoom, which is uh, created in Microsoft Research, uh, is, a, is a part of a Microsoft Research project. Uh, it's And what it essentially does is it looks at a photograph the same way that somebody would look at a Google map, which is to say I've got different levels of the image, and I'm going to cut it down into a bunch of tiles. And so instead of delivering an entire image, I'm going to deliver just the tiles that I need. So if I have a thumbnail, I'm going to have a really high zoom level, I'm going to have a really small, low resolution image. But as I drill down into that frame, and I want to look at detail, I'm going to pull really, really high resolution images, but they're small tiles. And so it doesn't take quite as long to load. And so our system is predicated around the idea that we're going to cut things up, and we're going to stitch them back together with other interesting data. Another interesting uh, sort of outcome of of looking at these camera sites and thinking about what it is that we can do is these these images show a picture of the natural world, they they show a, a frame with all kinds of life. Uh, you know, the, the river is alive, as Mike said. And, and what we can do is, you know, there, there are other signs of life that, that maybe aren't immediately apparent. We can see snowfall, but in the image it's really difficult to measure snowfall. Well, there are sensors all over the Platte River right now and more and more are coming online every day. So we can take that data and we can integrate it with the photographs to create a, a, a very impactful way of, of stitching together data and time-lapse imagery to, to create a, a, a full story, to, to give you the, the full picture of, of what it is that you're looking at. So we have all of the collected metadata from the cameras that we store in a relational database. And we query and we link that with US-level uh, county and state drought monitor data, so we can watch what drought conditions look like nationally or locally for the camera sites. We also bring in USGS stream flow gauges so we can actually see what the, the conditions were on the river. And we eventually will start onboarding weather sites uh, and other kinds of sensor data that will integrate with these images to allow people to not only see the image, but to allow people to actually pull in other data sets and, and create a, a, a story and a narration. The end goal of the system is, is to create the ability for users to come in, pull in data sets, store them with image, images, annotate those images, so if, if they do find the bear or the, the moose standing on the rock, they can annotate that, it will be really easy to find, I can say I want to see pictures, you know, north loop or you know, bear or whatever I want to see. The end result is a, an open-sourced web system, so this is available, you can download the source code, uh, that manages large photo sets and uh, combines them with data sets. So because I'm a computer scientist and data is data to me, it tends to be fairly platform agnostic. The software they're developing could be used for any kind of photographic data set. It doesn't have to be the Platte River photo, photographic data set. And so the source code for that's available if, if you have large data set that you want to mess around with. You can pull that and try to integrate it with the system. Um, it's implemented, since this is the tools session, I'll, I'll nerd out for a minute. It's implemented with Microsoft technology. It's ASP.NET MVC4. For C-Sharp, and we use a little bit of Silverlight to uh, accomplish the building of our, our videos. I won't spend too much time. The architecture looks a little bit like this. You can come find me after the talk. I'll tell you all about it. But what you really want to see is you want to see the solution. The solution is the actual cool tool here, right? And so instead of going through and showing you some screenshots, which is a good demo person, I have backups, so I can show you that. Let's try to do it live. So, this is live. This is the, it's live as of running on my laptop. Um, these are the photo sites that you saw a map of earlier on. It was a very static map. In this case, we can drive around and actively sort of navigate on this map. And we can look at the different photo sites. So, there was Missouri Confluence. Here's uh, Lead River Bridge. It's going to try to load off my hard drive here, so it'll take us just a second. We have the Mahoney Tower. I think a really interesting set. So during the, the talk, I leaned over to Mike. I said, hey, is that, is that Lake Agnes? He's like, oh, yeah, have you been there? I was like, well, no, I've never been there. I, I've been there digitally. Um, you know, so I, I've gotten fairly familiar with some of these sites from, from the images. And you know, that, I, I think that that sort of you know, kind of reinforces this point. The, the imagery is a really, really powerful thing. You know, I, I've never been, let's pull it up here. It's one of my favorite sites because I think it looks really cool. Yeah, I've never been there, but I can recognize it and, and I can see how the landscape changes over time and, and I can see how, you know, the, the, the wildlife and it's, you know, it is no substitute for actually going but it's, uh, it's a close approximation. So we can take a look at this. One of the, uh, the first things we did in the project is we really wanted to focus on user experience. So 123,000 images, you know, growing to half a million, million, you know, it will grow every year. it's a lot of images. And and so we wanted to make it really easy to find and navigate across that image set. And so the the deep zoom image format allowed us to use something called the Pivot Viewer which is also a Microsoft research technology that allows us to actually go in and and search for interesting data. So this is all of the images for uh, that particular site. Let's say I'm interested in the winter because I like to see the snow. So we can look at time of year. And so I can query these down and the, the deep zoom format makes that really, really fast. So we can look at winter. Let's say I'm interested in winter mornings. So we can do uh, morning. And I can drill back in, and we can look again at now time of year. So let's go ahead and look at some January images. And I can drill all the way down until I can start looking at actual individual images. And I can zoom in. And I can double click on that, and I can get more information. So this is the image, it's all blown up, nice high resolution, I can do interesting things with it, and I can start pulling in other data. This is what the drought situation looked like, um, as seen by the, uh, U, uh, the uh, US drought monitor from the uh, NDMC. This is the county that that camera site is in and what, droughts like, what drought conditions were in that county at the time. We can switch these around and we can look at you know, state. We can look at the whole US. And so it allows us to start stitching together, really, and, and, you know, other data sets to, to tell this interesting kind of story. But it's, you know frankly, just kind of fun to navigate around it and look for interesting images. So I'll do one more quickly. So north loop was one of the ones that we saw. So we can take a look at north loop. And let's say I just really want a sunset, uh, summer sunset on the north loop. So that's what we'll do. We'll search around for that. So I know that I want to do summer. interested in evening, let's say I want June, because that's going to be a good time of year, you know, and so as I start zooming in here, I can see, okay, I guess I zoomed in a little too far, I do have some sunsets, so there's one, There was a really cool looking one, here's a kind of nice looking one, yeah, that's good. And so, now I have a sunset on the North Loop that I can find really easy. So, I, I can cut through a lot of data really very quickly and, and then you know, find other interesting information. So, you know, we have a couple of fields right now that we're able to extract from the image met, uh, metadata. Imagine crowdsourcing this. Imagine creating a community around where people are annotating the images in their own way so that you know, I, I can say, I wanna see a, su- a summer sunset for North Loop where there's some wildlife in it. You know, I, I want to see the picture of, uh, you know, I don't, don't remember if it was Jack Creek or w- which of the sites, where there is a moose or a bear standing on the rock. You know, I want to see all of the images over the last five or six years or the last decade where there was some wildlife in this image. You know, I want to see how's the wildlife changing. You know, show me that progression. Once we open this up and allow people to actually start tagging these, we can create this massive data set and, and do really interesting things. And then I'll leave you very quickly with something that we're kind of prototyping on right now. Um, It works, uh, we'll go ahead and give it a shot with this one. So the idea that we can create our own time lapse. So we can create time lapse and have time lapse show up with digital data. I tried really, really hard to keep this so that we could do it on tablets. I really wanted to use JavaScript, and it turns out that's not going to work out for us. Um, The browsers just don't really want to do that. So we can create a time lapse of that set by stitching together the actual images and just letting the computer run it. So obviously, there are very few images here. But this can happen all real time, we can stitch data together, we can slow that down. Speed that back up. Oh, we don't wanna do that, that's way (laughs) fast. And so the idea is, is that when we bring software together with this rich data set and these rich images, we can do really, really powerful things. And we can, we can embolden a community uh, to tell, tell stories about the Platte River. So uh, I think that's all I have. I guess the rest of the session will be left over for questions. So
1: thanks very much. So we'd be happy to answer any questions for a few minutes, if you like. I can't see anybody, so you'll have to come up to a microphone. Yes, sir. I don't know if there well in other While sessions he's... there have been microphones so yes go ahead okay very brief question uh, this is
3: wonderful uh, and uh, as uh, the uh, early session showed some of the really interesting information occurs a hundred years later you know we were looking at old photographs of the prairie and so forth so uh, this kind of information is going to be particularly interested, interesting 100 years from now. Well, what's the probability that the digital information will be retained 100 years from now?
1: I think we better ask uh, the people that manufacture the digital systems that question. Uh, our hope, I, I think your question is uh, really important. When, when we started this project, it was our hope that we could keep it going for several decades. Uh, we think that the value is being able to look at things over deep time, and if we're able to keep this project funded and up and running for several decades, we're going to create a, a data set that will let future generations see what happened. Coupled with the the data that uh, USGS and the Weather Service and other folks are are, are generating, we think that's an incredibly valuable tool. Uh, of course, when you know. The explorers went west and they took their cameras, they were working on glass plate negatives. You can still print those negatives today. In the future, we don't know what uh, uh, support they'll be for uh, digital file systems, but presumably uh, this culture will realize the value of retaining images, and there'll be ways to translate from one data set to another or from one file system to another in the future, and these images will go forward.
2: I'm very confident in that. You know that's. I've been doing this for a long time, and, and I can't imagine a time where our culture would, would let digital imagery go, you know, and disappear. It's, it's, it's too important to, to us, it's too important to humanity. So um, I'm sure we can figure it out, but we'll always be keeping an eye on that as we progress through this project. Oh, yeah, right, right yeah, we would be print, burning print up, up a lot best, of trees. Right? Yeah, right, I know. Don.
4: Hi. Hi. Don Nelson from Lincoln. Uh, Your work and project so vividly underscores the fact, as Mike said, rivers are living and breathing organisms. So rivers are much captured in your video streaming. Sadly, our 125 to 150-year-old set of Western Water Law embodied in our state constitutions and our laws passed by our legislatures are like polaroid photographs treating rivers as a static frozen entity what should we do about that
1: (laughs) well don that's a profound question Uh, you know the platte river recovery program and their charged to manage the river through adaptive management is an attempt to answer that question. I think we now understand what we didn't understand a hundred years ago. If you kill off the last bison, that's it, there's no chance to come back. If you take this river down to the point where it can't function anymore as a natural system, it's too late to come back. So we've pulled back from that. But the question is how best to go forward. And adaptive management is an, an attempt to answer that question with the limited knowledge that we have at the present. In the future, we'll know more than we know now. But adaptive management operates under the premise that you try something and as long as it keeps working, you keep trying it further. If it quits working, you find something else to do. And I think that's a wise choice for us
2: at this point. I also think that first you have to pull the curtain back and get people to see that, that you know, we, we do live on this thin skin. Um, you know, we call planet Earth, and, and we have very little margin for error. And most of us don't come off of a farm or a ranch anymore. Most of us live in the urban world. And so it's, it's a matter of, of um, getting people to, to appreciate and care that this is a living, breathing thing. It is built out of systems. It's a systems base, and we're part of that system. And if we can't care about that, if we can't understand how that works, then then we might as well just go all stick our heads in the sand somewhere. But I, I have more hope for humanity than that. But that's again the power of photography. It's the power of photography is it, it shows, and it's one step away from being there. You know, so this is a, this is a tool, but it's just a starting point. You know, and then, then it's all up to us. We appreciate it, we value it, if we value it, we're gonna wanna protect it. And we're gonna wanna stand up and, and and try to knock down some of those old, antiquated laws and policies, and move forward. Mike and Mike, we're about got out of time question. Here. One
5: over here. Okay. Okay. Um, yes, sir. One of the things in watching the uh, the time lapse of the rivers, it seemed like you know it was going up and down a little bit, a little bit, and then very quickly the water in some some of them appear to be gone. And I didn't know if that was a you know an empty space in in the photography or if there was an event. That caused the water to very rapidly glow, and if you could, you know, uh, figure out how to connect what that event might have been, and then the impact on the ability of of the uh, of species that depend on on the river to to adapt quickly to that loss of water. If you had any comments on that?
2: Well, we live in a very volatile landscape. It's always it's always changing in the in the plains, as in most temperate grasslands around the world. Um, so. There are, there are events that we can capture, and using the, the software that Ian is developing and, and others, uh, we'll be able to tie to those events. But the other thing is, though, is that this stuff isn't perfect. <laughs> so we've, we've had several iterations uh, of technology trying to, to refine this, this system. So there are times where the camera does drop out. You know, there is a time when the lightning bolt comes and hits the camera or the bird poops on the lens and we don't know about it or anything. One of the things that we're developing now is by the end of the summer, we should have roughly 30 of these cameras out there um, hooked up by cellular technology. So these images will be coming to us every day. So we'll be able to see when things go down.
1: Thanks to the Cooper Foundation.
2: Right. Yep. So. Okay. All right. Thanks Max, very, thank you much. very much.
0: Okay, uh, the next speaker will be John Varan, and he'll be talking about underground uh, sensors. And the uh, interesting thing we saw in this first talk, there'll be connections to each of the other talks. So John also works with sandhill cranes and monitoring those with some backpack harnesses. It turns out he's not going to talk about that today, he's going to talk about something more directly related to water for food. Um, but then in the third talk, we saw the, uh, the cliff swallows. Uh, under the bridges, and I think we'll see a video that has the same thing from an aerial drone in the third talk. The same colony, I believe. Okay, and so so keep these these connections in mind when we have the panel at the end. You can ask questions about uh, between the talks as well. John,
5: thank you. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is John Moran. I'm an assistant professor at the Computer Science and Engineering Department at UNL, um, and uh, today I'll talk about. Uh, Tying a little bit to what Ian actually talked about, to big data, I'll talk about how we can tie soil to the cloud and eventually get information from the cloud. So if I can get the slides on the screen. So what I was talking about while the slides are getting up um, is in collaboration with uh, Computer science and engineering, uh, our students, as well as uh, biological systems engineering uh, faculty, especially uh, with SWAT or MAC. Um, maybe I can try this. All right. We had it. (laughs) That's what happens when you use Mac. (laughs) Let's try again. All right. Uh, So this is a picture from one of our experiments with center pivots. So I'll be talking about center pivots a lot, and I'm sure everybody knows what they are if you're in the right conference. Um, so I'll be talking a little bit about giving an introduction of what we are doing. Um, I'll talk about some existing soil moisture monitoring techniques um, and talk a little bit about the challenges that we are facing in terms of both technology as well as their widespread uh, adoption in the field. And I'll talk about what we have been developing at UNL uh, wireless underground communication to collect information from soil moisture sensors and talk a little bit about the experiments we are doing with soil moisture sensors and irrigation systems. A um, li- little bit background on our cyber-physical networking lab at uh, UNL. We were founded in 2007. Currently we have three PhD students, two masters and one undergrad uh, student working and we have had graduates uh, in PhD masters as well as undergrad researchers they're now working in a wide range of areas in Microsoft, NVIDIA, Garmin, National Instruments, and we have been able to convince some of them to continue PhD as well. Uh, We're collaborating with several faculty in our department, as well as Biological Systems Engineering School of Natural Resources and International Crane Foundation. This is what uh, Steve talked about. Uh, we are uh, working on um, underground sensor networks. This is funded by uh, NSF as well as USGS. We are working with International Crane Foundation in Wisconsin to monitor uh, sandhill cranes. Uh, We are monitoring them from up above rather than on the floor, on the ground. Uh, This is uh, supported by Disney Worldwide Conservation Fund. We are basically developing backpacks to uh, monitor uh, sandhill cranes and eventually whooping cranes. We're using cellular technology. Believe it or not, we have family plan from AT&T. And uh, the birds are sending SMS. Uh, telling us their location and what they're doing. So take that Twitter. Um, We're working on stochastic analysis tools for wireless sensor networks as well. And we just started working on cognitive radio networks, which are going to be, probably we're going to call them 5G or 6G, the next generation of our cellular communication. Um, We have over 50 publications. And it seems like people like our publications, so we have over. Uh, 4,000 citations of our publications. So today I'll talk about wireless underground sensor networks. And I'll start with talking about one of the major problems we have been talking throughout this conference, water scarcity. A lot has been said, so I'll just throw in two numbers and just two slides on this topic. We can talk about this for hours, and we haven't for days. Uh, One is we have been... um, estimating a population increase of 40% by 2050 and doubling of uh, demand for food by that time. And currently, right now, we're using 70% of the freshwater resources uh, just for agriculture, just for providing this, this demand. Um, and just give you, to give you a perspective, if you look at the, the volume of the Earth and scale, the whole water on the Earth You can see how little resources we have. And actually, we're not using all these water, we can't. You can see this little dot, which is the fresh water on Earth, the volume of fresh water on Earth that we can use for agriculture. And this is a resource that is not necessarily increasing, but our demand for foods and essentially for water is increasing. So the bottom line is we need more crop for drought. Uh, that's, That's one of the major problems we are facing. So what is the solution? Well, um, I'll talk about a very small part of the solution that we're, tol- we're working on. And, um, and I think one of the parts of this big problem solution is information. We need to collect more information. This may be from the ground, from the plants, from weather, air, whatnot. We need to deliver this information at the right time, at the right place. And we need to analyze this information. And as we get more information, we will be able to move into much better decision-making tools as well as creating actions based on these decisions. And this is basically the the perspective we have towards the solution of this big problem. And we're trying to create a tiny solution that can help towards the bigger solution. Um, When we talk about sensors, when we talk about Um, irrigation. We have to talk about sensors. This is a picture of a soil moisture sensor. It has been used on uh, research fields as well as farm fields for a very long time, over 20 years. Uh, This is a picture from our South Central Agricultural Lab um, in Clay Center, um, where underground soil moisture sensors are used to make decisions about irrigation. And research shows that with these sensors alone, we can improve the water efficiency up to 20%, and in some cases up to 30 to 35%. This is a huge improvement in terms of how we're using water. Obviously, the, informa- the, the, the real um, problem is how do we get this information from the fields? Um, this picture shows a data logger where graduate students have to go into the fields every day and collect data and then use this information to make decisions. This is obviously not the best way to do um, This is one of our extension officers uh, showing one of our growers how to use these readers and collect information. But when it comes to large fields, you can imagine how hard it is to collect information from a sensor in the middle of a field. Um, so since 2005, um, UNL has been leading the Nebraska Agricultural Water Management Network to uh, basically encourage use of additional decision-making tools, including sensors as well as evapotranspiration data. Um, it has started with 20 growers. This has, led, this has been led by and the uh, extension officers at UNL. And currently, there are more than 1,000 growers. And when we look at some of the initial data in terms of feedback from the growers. What we see was this question, what do you like least of this program? And the answers were really interesting. And they all talked about sensors, putting them on the field, reading information from sensors. Because back then, the the collection method was basically manual data collection. Um, I believe this has been also seen by the industry. And since then, a lot of efforts have been put in developing remote soil monitoring tools. Um, recent technology has been used to develop these tools. Initially, satellite data services has been used, um, which are initially high cost, obviously, provides low data rates, but has been a significant jump from what we had before. And using this information, the growers were able to improve the water efficiency and even get higher yields because they can use the water at the right time at the right amount. More recently, we are seeing more and more what we call as machine-to-machine communication technologies, which rely on cellular solutions that are used. The costs are significantly going down. And we can also get large amounts of data, which improves the decision-making methods. This is a typical view of a a current remote soil monitoring tool. You can see um, underground sensors at different depths. Um, up to four different depths that can be capacitive or resistive. Sensors that collect information continuously from different profiles of the soil. Uh, these are augmented by weather stations that provide additional information. And these are all connected to a base station, which are wired to these sensors and has onboard computation capabilities. So we can do some data crunching on the, on the board. And eventually, they use satellites or uh, cellular communication to transmit this information to the cloud. And some of the services provided by the the existing soil monitoring techniques start from data acquisition using the sensors and the base stations to data analysis, uh, providing thresholds, field maps, and eventually providing service in terms of irrigation decisions, consulting, and visualization. So these are some of the examples of existing tools. The information can be visualized, can be analyzed, and eventually uh, certain thresholds of where the uh, the water content in the soil should be kept can be provided to the grower so that the grower can uh, initiate irrigation and uh, adjust the amounts. Um, this is great. This is a significant jump from what we had before. And it provides significant improvements in terms of how we use water, as well as how we can improve the yield of cornfields. And if you look at the irrigated land in the US, this is a significant opportunity to improve the water efficiency and eventually um, provide a little solution to this big problem of water scarcity uh, in the US, for example. But one of the problems we see is, if you look at the USDA research data, this is somewhat outdated, but it shows that only 8% of growers use some of these technologies, moisture sensors, uh, government sponsored services, and computer simulations. And 80% use visual observations. They make decisions based on the soil, uh, from the feel of the soil. They start irrigation when neighbor irrigates. They have personal calendars or they rely on media reports. So there's still a big gap between where the technology is right now and where it is on the field. So that's a big challenge. And if you look at more closely, for example, if you look at what California farmers are doing in terms of irrigation scheduling, we see again the same. Decision-making tools that are favored more and more, like the condition of the crop, 66% of fuel of the uh, soil, 45% compared to soil moisture sensor devices, which are used by only 14% of the growers. And you can also see that these numbers don't add up to 100, which also shows that growers are using multiple sources to make their decisions, which is also an important factor when we talk about big data. the reasons for growers to adapt new technology, if you look at it, is basically their impact. Improved crop yields, reduce energy costs, and reduce water applied. Basically, increasing the yields and decreasing the costs are the major reasons for, effect, or for using new technology in fields. So basically, the technologies that we have to develop needs to directly impact these reasons so that we can have larger uh, adoption of these new technologies. Um, If you look at current soil moisture monitoring techniques, these are some of the pictures from existing solutions. Like I said, mostly the the architecture is similar where we have sensors that are under the ground that are connected to weather stations and provide information uh, wirelessly using satellites or cellular technology. Um, But when we look more closely into these technologies, um, we see some very common properties of these solutions. Um, Since uh, we are using almost a single sensor per field, most of the solutions use capacitive-based sensors, um, provide additional sensors, but have some common properties such as wired connection from sensors to the base station. We basically have to have sensors for each base station, um, and this leads to having single probe or limited number of probes next to towers, and creates an obstruction in the field because these towers have to be within the field so that they are connected to the sensors on the ground. It's really hard to draw lines, to draw uh, cables on a large field, so the probes and the towers have to be within the field, which creates some obstructions. So there are some technical challenges because of all this architecture. First of all, from the system's perspective, we're talking about a single point of failure. Um, We need a tower per sensor, which increases the cost per sensor. And this basically leads to using a single sensor in a field or using a single sensor for multiple fields. And this leads to, from the system's perspective, using high-quality tools and increases the cost eventually. And some of the problems we, when we talk to um, growers and the representative of these companies, we see a lot of problems related to how these sensors are connected to these towers, even cables. Deployment is a hassle. Since the, these towers need to be in the middle of the field, they have to be taken out before harvesting. And they have to be put back in next year after seeding. There's a huge maintenance problem going on. Um, communication quality is another challenge. Uh, The existing technology uses um, top-of-the-line solutions in cellular technology. These are great machines. They use the latest technology that uses cellular technology. But the problem is cellular technology was not built to work within Canopy. So we are seeing problems because of that. Off-the-shelf components are used that really does not support adaptation that is required because of the fact that these machines are operating within the crops and the changing dynamics of the crops. Uh, And there's significant wear and tear because these devices have to within the crop and has to withstand these problems. Um, And this increases operation cost and also ties the operation cost into number of sensors. So bottom line is, with the technology we have, we are providing sensor information from most of the time a single location, almost a single route in a whole field to make decisions about irrigation. That's a big challenge. But this is where we are right now. And this is, again, this is a big improvement compared to what we had before. But we can do better. Um, we cannot capture field variability. This is a big problem in terms of uh, new technologies. For example, Welly has the new variable rate irrigation technology. and as well as other irrigation companies. This leads to high cost because for variable rate irrigation, you need to be able to capture the variability in the field, which requires, essentially, multiple locations to be monitored in the field. So that's a big challenge. Uh, So as a summary, there are several barriers to widespread adaptation of any technology. Um, Cost is one issue because of some of the challenges of systems and the technology that I'm talking about. There's also lack of confidence from the growers. When we talk to growers who are not using this technology, the most common answer that I've got was, well, I know my field much better than this sensor. Well, this is not unfounded because the pedigree and prevalence of this data we are getting from the sensors and from all the systems are not really well known. Basically, how do we know that the data we're getting at our computer is actually what is happening on the field? We have to create that confidence so that these technologies can be more widespread used. And maintenance becomes another problem uh, as well. So, what we have been doing at UNL was trying to crack at this problem, take a crack at this problem, and develop wireless underground sensors that will provide communication between underground sensors concealed with. Uh, a device above the ground using wireless communication. This is the vision we are working towards. We want fields to be deployed with sensors at appropriate locations that collect information about the soil and provide this information to either the machinery or the grower using wireless communication technology so that we don't have a tower in the middle of a field. In this way, we can also decrease the cost so we can have multiple sensors in the field so we can provide actually more information so that we can make better decisions. And eventually, we want to tie this information to the cloud so that this information can be tied with other sources. Remember, growers are not relying on a single source, and it's not the best thing to do, actually. So we need to tie this information to other sources of information and eventually provide information all the way back to either the grower or, Better yet, maybe uh, to the machinery themselves. So we can create, hopefully in the future, autonomous irrigation solutions. Um, we have been looking at the problem of wireless underground communication. Um, this is a largely um, on research field for a long time. The latest solutions we have found was from World War II, where uh, the U.S. military wanted to build bunkers that can communicate between each other in case of a nuclear attack, and this required huge radios. Um, we want to create little sensors that can send their information from under the ground to to above the ground. So we have been doing a lot of experiments to understand the wireless communication principles when we put something under the ground. We did a lot of experiments. We developed channel models. I won't get into the details of these. Um, And the models we developed basically show that we can model the um, underground communication using some basic principles of wave propagation, considering the properties of the soil. Using this, we have developed what we call a three-wave model, compared this with electromagnetic theory, found that it matches well in the ranges we're interested in, did some experiments, and also found that our model also matches well with experimental data. So we can model what's going on under the ground when we send information wirelessly. Um, So by developing channel models, we have been able to understand a little bit better how the electromagnetic waves propagates under the ground. With field experiments, we have validated our insights. And finally, we have concluded that wireless communication through the soil is feasible. So now the question is, How can we form a network, but rather uh, better a sensor network, using wireless underground sensors? So we looked at some of the higher levels of the communication stack. We looked at some of the properties of the link layer, looked at different amounts of information that can be transmitted from under the ground, and looked at different um, error control techniques that basically provide reliability for wireless communication. And we are also considering an architecture where we can collect information from these underground sensors using mobile data harvesting tools. So we're, again, harvesting stuff on the field. Um, One of the mobile tools that we can use already available on the field are center pivots. So I'm going to talk a little bit about our experiments. The other tools are uh, UAVs, which Sebastian and Kerrick are going to talk about next after the break. Um, we did some analysis based on this mobile data harvesting model with the wireless underground sensors. Looked at several parameters in terms of, first of all, the network lifetime. We basically want the, the network, the underground sensors, to operate for several years so that we don't need to recharge them or uh, take them out and put them back in. Um, we looked at environment, the effects of environmental conditions, the protocol parameters that we're using at the wireless level, Packet sizes, delays, rates, and all these properties. And eventually found some interesting results. One of the interesting results was um, using more sophisticated error control techniques that are adaptive to the properties of the soil. That can improve the data throughput significantly. When compared to traditional techniques of um, retransmission based communication, if we use adaptive forward error correction techniques, that basically use the information from the soil sensor to adapt the communication parameters. we can improve the throughput significantly. And one important factor is, um, this graph shows the throughput versus the amount of data we are sending. And if you look at the bottom two lines, these are the performance of the underground communication when we have um, a deployment where there is high soil moisture, which is the bottom line and a low soil moisture, a drier land, which is the middle line, we see that there's a significant difference if we use traditional techniques. But if we use adaptive forward error correction, we can also decrease the top two lines. You can see the difference between the effects of environment, which is really significant because electromagnetic waves are significantly affected from soil moisture. Um, Another important factor is the lifetime. How long do these sensors operate under the ground? So we looked at several Um, parameters of operation and if we set up a a target of five years by adjusting the number of mobile nodes per underground deployed in the field. This graph shows that the x-axis mobile nodes per hundred, underground nodes we're considering a little bit larger deployments of hundred nodes. When you're a networking guy you tend to think about hundreds of nodes as networks But if you look at, for example, the line of 10, which basically corresponds to a single mobile node per 10 sensor, which is a typical application in a center pivot um, irrigated land with 10 sensors, we can see that uh, we can actually get lifetimes of higher than five years, uh, irrespective of how frequently we are collecting the data, from 30 minutes to, every 16 hours. It depends on the application. So basically, we can operate longer than five years using only batteries with a very conservative estimate of uh, battery leaks and um, retransmissions and and whatnot. This is really encouraging, because now we can talk about networks that can operate for longer times without any hassle. Um, Using all this. Insight we have gained, we have developed underground communication techniques to uh, test the underground to above ground communication, basically collecting information from underground sensors. These are pictures from some of the experiments. But this is what I wanna talk about. This is a picture that shows the communication quality on the y-axis versus distance with our new system compared to some of the existing prototypes and systems. And we can see that We can increase communication ranges up to 80 to 90 meters from an underground device that is deployed around 40 centimeters depth, which is close to the root level, to an above ground device that is at a two meter high, which is around where the center pivots operate. So we can basically communicate horizontally 80 meters between these devices. And this is a significant improvement, three times to 10 10 times improvement compared to existing solutions. Um, This is a rare picture that you see from a computer science talk, Uh, a couple laptops in the middle of a cornfield. Uh, So we started experiments with center pivot systems once we are more comfortable with the technology. What we did was we deployed sensors on a center pivot irrigated land in Clay Center. And we attached uh, above-ground communication devices on a center pivot. So basically, the center pivot would collect information from these underground sensors. Again, these are some of the pictures. Talking about pictures, it's really hard to take a picture of an underground network. So this is the best we can do. Maybe there's a better way that Mike and Mike can uh, talk to me about. Um, And this was our deployment scenario. We have four underground nodes. As center pivots, you can look at, you can see the above ground nodes attached to the uh, center pivots. And as the center pivot moves around the field, we can collect information from the underground devices. We're not at a place where we can collect all the information from all the underground nodes, but we need to rely on a system that looks like a radar. That basically, as a center pivot pivots around the field, we can collect information from the underground devices. Um, These are some of the earlier experiments with the um, center pivot moving uh, to an uh, uh, underground node. Um, The way to read this graph is if we consider the underground deployed at the distance 0, as the center pivot moves towards the uh, underground node, we start communicating um, up to 90 meters down to 40 meters ranges. And then after the center pivot passes, we can still continue communication uh, with the underground device. This is important because this red um, lines show the um, radius of the sprinklers in the irrigation device, which means we can actually communicate with the underground devices much earlier than the irrigation system reaches that location, which means we can use this information, the soil moisture information, to adaptively adjust the amount of water to be irrigated. And if you think about a stationary uh, center pivot that is part of the location, we can collect information from a far ahead, underground device to initiate irrigation as well. And an additional um, capability we have with this system is we can also continue to communicate after the irrigation has been completed, uh, more or less, um, which provides opportunities to check whether we have been making the right decisions. As a sound moves slowly, we can actually see the effects of the uh, water on that location. Uh, we have This was back in 2011 and early 2012. These are some of the other experiments with all the four nodes. You can see we have been getting some pretty consistent results of communication ranges of between 50 to 60 meters. Um, and another time again, which basically Um, shows that we can use this technology for collecting information from underground sensors. Um, Now the question with variable rate irrigation. um, This technology provides us tools to deploy multiple sensors with low cost and collect this information from under the ground. Um, But to be able to do that we should be able to collect this information in real time and provide this information to the decision makers in real time. So we require Uh, an architecture which connects the soil to the cloud. This is the architecture we have in mind. We're not the best uh, designers of architectures, but you can see the whole idea. We have underground nodes that send information to a ground device on a center pivot that communicate with the cloud. And we have uh, implemented this um, architecture last summer in Clay Center again. These are some of the pictures of the center pivots and uh, the above ground devices. We also implemented the same system in a lateral moo uh, irrigation system. This is one of the first uh, lateral move systems that have been used in research in Clay Center. Um, and these are some of the pictures. Uh, and we have been able to collect information from different locations in the field and visualize this information uh, in real time as well as historically. Uh, and this was um, presented in one of our conferences as a demo. The interesting part is this was, the, as far as we know, the first attempt at connecting wireless undergrounds to the cloud and collect Uh, soil moisture information in real-time using wireless underground sensors. And if you look at the location of the conference, this was also the first international communication between a piece of land in Nebraska and a computer in South Korea. Um, this This is a snapshot of our web interface. The growers can see the locations of underground sensors as well as location of the center pivot and also see uh, the soil moisture levels historically, as well as in real time. And in this figure, you can also see the results of experimentation. One of our soil moisture sensors died, which is this little blue line at the bottom. But we can get information from the other ones. And what the, the interesting part for us was what died was the sensor itself, not the wireless communication device. So we're not the blade, I can say. Um, recently, we have been awarded and. National Science Foundation Innovation Corp Grant. This is a new initiative by National Science Foundation to push us academicians closer to uh, the business world. Um, and this is a quote at the right-hand of the slide. You can see that describes the, the program. The goal is to prepare scientists and engineers to extend their focus beyond the labs and towards more commercialization of the solutions that are developed within the labs. Um, We have a team that's uh, participated in this program. Um, Xin Dong, the second picture, is our entrepreneur lead. He's actually the one who's driving all this research. He's our PhD student who's about to graduate. Um, Steve Reichenbach is a professor in our department who has been very successful in terms of commercialization of research. And Suat Irmak uh, has been our uh, domain expert and has been guiding this uh, commercialization effort as well. Uh, so we thought the, the results were pretty good, that we can actually commercialize this, this product. Um, as a part of this program, we have learned a lot. Some of the things I talked about are actually as a result of this program. We talked to a lot of a lot of people, um, more than 100 Um, individuals, including growers, um, soil moisture sensing companies, irrigation companies, agronomists, and learned uh, quite a bit. So we are hopeful that uh, we'll be able to commercialize this technology and provide this technology to the general public much faster. Um, So a couple comments on what is awaiting us. With the technology more immediate goals, is to move to a permanent probe installation using wireless underground sensors. We want to have sensors that operate for not just five years, but more than that, so we can collect consistent information from the field. And this also, from the um, cost perspective, also decreases the cost significantly, because the maintenance will be almost nil. Um, In the larger scope, With wireless underground sensor networks, we can provide solutions that can monitor the soil anytime and anywhere. So we can realize spatial and temporal soil monitoring. So we can make decisions based on the variability in the soil in terms of space as well as in terms of time, which can improve the efficiency of irrigation solutions and hopefully water usage. challenge we have is data validation. With all the systems that I've talked about, including ours, we have this challenge of convincing the public that what you receive is what is happening down on the field. So one of the um, capabilities that wireless underground sensor networks provide is what we call as in-network validation, where we can fuse the data that is collected on the field to make some Corrections or decisions about whether the data we are collecting is actually true, correct, or not. Eventually, big data, it all comes to that. We cannot solve this problem just using soil moisture sensors. We have to combine information from everywhere on the field, including soil sensors, sprinklers, pivot information, seeders, controllers, weather information, satellite information to be able to make more informed decisions. And this is a huge challenge. First of all, uh, technically a huge challenge because the systems that have been developed to collect information from the field have been developed independently. And it's really hard to make your irrigation system communicate with your combine, even though they are next to each other all the time. Um, but we have to do that. And eventually we, we need to, find solutions that make things easier to analyze this huge data from maybe a single field, um, and eventually multiple fields uh, for uh, growing and agriculture. Um, One of the challenges we are facing, for example, right now is we have this technology where we can deploy sensors anywhere in the field. But the question is, where do we put these sensors? and that's a huge challenge if we want to realize uh, variable rate irrigation solutions. And eventually, what you do with the data with, that you collect from the underground sensors is another challenge. Um, and eventually, with this information fusion, hopefully we'll be able to move towards uh, more informed decision-making tools. And eventually, we can close the loop and use this, decision, this information decision-making tools uh, to develop better practices for agriculture and hopefully uh, try to solve this big problem eventually. But this is all I have. I'll be happy to take any questions.
6: Hi, right, is this on? Yeah. Hi, uh, I'm Chad Smith with the Platte River Recovery Implementation Program. I just quickly wanted to say I appreciated both of these presentations this morning. We're obviously very supportive money-wise and, and otherwise to the work that Mike and Mike are doing with the um, time-lapse uh, photography project. I appreciate Mike Farrell saying adaptive management is going to save the world because that's my area of expertise, so I, uh, thanks for that plug. And Mamet, and I, I appreciated your presentation, it was really cool and it makes me feel better that we're getting ready to start a wet meadows hydrology monitoring project with you folks and it seems like there's going to be some cool technology we can use for that. I wanted to violate protocol real quick and actually ask you about something you only briefly mentioned at the beginning of your presentation and that's the work you're doing with the ICF. Mm -hmm. On sandhill cranes, when it's all said and done, the Platte River program will have spent probably in the neighborhood of a million dollars on a whooping crane telemetry tracking project across the whole continent. We're getting an enormous amount of data from Texas all the way up to the Northwest Territories, including here in Nebraska on the Central Platte, on roughly three dozen whooping cranes. is the work that you're doing on Sandhills, is that different technology from the radio so what is that we're using? And, and mm-hmm. is it something we can maybe look at in the future?
5: Yes. So um, what we are developing is um, a cellular-based technology, which when we started um, this project uh, three, four years ago, this was actually part of a course project that was initiated by one of our students. Um, we said satellite technology, which has been used with swooping cranes, is too expensive. Um, and also, you're not getting what you're paying for. The data rates are very uh, uh, small. Uh, the delays are huge. You get information 48, 56 hours later than it's collected. We said, this is not the way to go. And so we started using cellular technology. What we are doing right now is, um, as far as we know, the existing technology uses uh, GPS to provide location of the cranes. But one of the things the ecologists we are working with, International Crane Foundation, is interested in is not just where they are, but what they are doing. So we're using onboard um, sensors, um, accelerometers, gyros, to monitor the behavior and the posture of the bird. So the goal is to be able to tell what the bird is doing when we are collecting the information without any direct observation uh, from the ecologist, which is a huge challenge, especially during migration. Uh, So with this information, we're hoping we can augment the location information with the behavioral information. And we're also developing some uh, adaptive sampling and communication techniques uh, that can initiates additional sampling procedures if we detect that the bird is doing something interesting or is flying somewhere that has never flown before. So we're trying to make the system more adaptive. And one additional goal is we don't want the devices to be just instruments that provide information, but we want them to be what we call flying labs so that the ecologists can actually directly communicate with these devices and the cellular technology provides that. And they can change the operational parameters on the fly based on their changing hypotheses. So that's one of the goals as well.
6: Hello. I, I just want to say that what you're doing is fantastic. Uh, uh, I can't tell you how many people said it was impossible, and that is really cool. I heard those as well. Yeah, I'm sure you have. Nothing's impossible, it's just we just don't know how yet. But uh, the one thing is, since your, since the the transmission or the radio signal is actually affected by soil moisture, could you use the radios as the sensor?
5: Um, that's a very good question. Uh, we can use, but not that accurately, compared to what we have, like capacitive or even resistive sensors. So there's a way to use that, but we are actually doing the other way around. We, we know that if the soil moisture gets high, we'll have bad communication, so we get prepared for that in the radio stack.
0: Hi, we have farmers in our family. And I was wondering when you expect these underground sensors to be available. And if you're looking at you know two to three years down the road, is there a way to get them? in combination with what you're doing? Kind of like have it at your house so that you guys can research on it.
5: Um, I appreciate that. Uh, Actually, this summer we are starting uh, demonstration deployments uh, in a couple different fields outside of Clay Center in farmer uh, fields. Um, And um, if you are interested in using them as a research tool uh, that we can use to Improve our technology. I'll be happy to talk as well. Yeah, All right. Thank you very much.
0: So we're gonna we're gonna move to the third talk of this morning session. And, and then, as I mentioned, we'll have a, uh, a panel where all the speakers from this morning will be up at this table. You can see we added another uh, another table and some more chairs. And so you'll be able to ask questions of any of the speakers at that point. Following the, this morning's theme, you notice I didn't introduce each of the speakers. I'm more interested in the message than telling you about the messenger. And so I let the speakers introduce themselves for the most part. I think you'll find this talk is another very interesting talk, as, as were the first two, I promised you flying aerial vehicles, uh, it won't happen at the beginning. I think it's going to happen somewhere in the middle when you're starting to doze off. They'll come in at you. Um, but we'll start, I believe, with Sebastian Elbaum. We'll, we'll start talking. And, and Sebastian and Carrick are both professors in the computer science and engineering department, and they'll take turns during the talk um, to try and keep you awake. Okay, thank you.
7: Hello? Can you hear me well? Yes? All right. Well, uh, we're very happy to be here. This is not a a type of forum that we're used to. Um, We are not um, water experts. We're not food experts. Um, But we know a lot about how to build software and how to build and equip these these drones that I'm going to show you with a, a lot of capabilities. And we believe we're pushing the technology in this area uh, to places that uh, um, that are really at, at the boundary of what we know how to do. Now, um, so uh, if we can switch to the slides, please, thank you. Um, the, the theme of this talk is the idea of repurposing drones. Now, uh, the idea is that drones have been part of the military of uh, powerful nations for many years. Uh, but slowly, a revolution is happening in this area that the cost, the capabilities, the size of these drones uh, is changing quite a bit. Um, so let's start by, uh, by looking a little bit at what is a drone or a UAV, as I'm going to refer in this talk. UAV is an unmanned air vehicle. Okay, And when I mention the word drone, often the first thing that comes to mind to a lot of people is a massive military uh, type aircraft that can do surveillance, that can gather intelligence, that can do counterterrorism uh, activities. Um, now, these type of drone, like a Predator or the Reaper, they cost millions of dollars. They have the size of large airplanes. They are autonomous to a certain extent. For example, to visit, you know, you you can provide a set of coordinates, and it will traverse a certain path. It will reach a certain location, a thousand miles away. But they need a team of people to actually fly them. They need a team of people to fly them, to control their sensors, to manage uh, all the resources that they utilize. Uh, so these are really, really uh, large machines, very powerful machines. For other people, so that's one type of drone. For other folks, for example, our collaborators NASA, a drone is really something like the Helios uh, drone. And this is really just like a flying wing. Imagine the wing of a 747, uh, maybe 50% larger than that, full on top with solar cells. Okay? And the idea was to do atmospheric studies with these drones. And the cool thing about it is they can go really high, okay, and it can actually stay in the air for a long amount of time with this renewable source of energy. So again, a different type of drone. Perhaps closer to home is this CropCam drone. I don't know, how many of you have heard about CropCam? All right, so at least five. <laughs> um, so I, I was going to, I, I, was, I, sh- I, I should have grabbed the website because it, it says they're widespread, uh, but maybe not in this community. Um, but the CropCams are, are basically fixed wing small aircrafts, perhaps a, you know, six, seven feet, uh, and you can just launch them with your hands. And what they're good for is actually going over fields. Uh, you can specify waypoints or coordinates, and it will take pictures from the air. Now, these, as you can imagine, are very different from a predator drone, okay? These cost in the thousands of ten or maybe tens of thousands of dollars, not millions. Uh, they're they much lighter. They cannot reach something that is 1,000 miles away, but they can perhaps go over a few acres, take pictures, and fulfill some of the requirements that perhaps a farmer may have uh, or a consultant may have to do something you know, some uh, data collection that you would usually do with a plane you would do with this drone. Now, um, again, much cheaper, much smaller. And so far the takeaway in your mind should be that when you see in Times Magazine drones are out to catch you, you know, Keep in mind that there is a huge diversity of what these UAVs or drones are. They're not all out there to get you. Definitely not the ones that we are developing. So uh, now what we mean by drones is slightly different. Uh, John Paul and Kerrick will, will show us what we mean by them. And I'm going to switch gears here a little bit and show you what, what we mean by drones. Now, what you're going to see in the cameras are a bunch of things, but we're going to be flying two drones on two sides of the room. For the gentleman that is trying to hit it with a piece of paper in the front row, watch out because this one is going to come over your head very soon. as you can see, these are extremely stable. Right now, they're being piloted by Kerrick and John Paul, but we have the capabilities to actually do the same thing autonomously. We're using them for safety, primarily. Now, what you see on the right is a Falcon. It has eight propellers. Uh, and it has a camera in the front to capture you know, pictures, videos. And we have direct feed from the data that that drone is capturing. Can we see the feed from the Falcon, please, on the screen? All right, maybe you cannot see the feed from the Falcon. Okay, now we see the feed from the Falcon. So that's what that drone is looking at right now. And the drone has a camera that can rotate and basically capture all the angles that you want. Uh, so they're great for taking pictures, but furthermore, they're great for capturing videos. And one thing that you're going to see on your left with John Paul is that this is a smaller vehicle, a quad rotor, very light. It works with the battery, it, it weighs maybe a pound. It's about one square feet. Extremely agile, extremely flexible. So you can put it in a, in a sky, in a particular coordinate, but also you can do tons of interesting maneuvers with them. OK, so raise your hand if this is the coolest talk in the conference, please. Thank you. All right. Thank you, folks. So and we'll talk about a few others here. But the whole point of this is that when we talk about a drone, we're talking about a very diverse set of machinery with very diverse capabilities. So this is a drone. Okay, this is an autonomous drone. We can fly, actually, this one autonomously in our lab without a pilot. Okay? And this thing is actually it's called Ladybird for a reason. It's really super agile. It can actually do flips, all kinds of fancy, fancy things. This one is a little bit more of a heavyweight, and we're going to see what it does. But you see vials in there. You see a little tube with a pump. Uh, the clue is that it's going to be related to water. Okay, so we're going to show you what we can do with some of these vehicles. But a lot of diversity, and um, that's the first message that I want to take away from, from the talk, is uh, the diversity in terms of purposes, goals, costs, and, uh, and basically users of these drones. So what can these unmanned vehicles do for, uh, for this, you? Know, for you? for water for food, for people working on agriculture, uh, water analysis, uh, the combination of both. So, Kerrick and I, when we were invited, we really uh, put our heads together. We, you know, Kerik is, is a very creative individual, and, um, and basically we devised two things where we think this technology can have an enormous impact. The first one. It's called water for plants. That's what we're thinking. <laughs> uh, or maybe uh, creating my own cloud. Now that cloud is so you know uh, such a such a common word, but but actually that wasn't the best one. The best one that we came up with, uh, we call it the air clipper, and it can have multiple uses. We can see this in Home Depot maybe next year uh, if we're successful. Now. More seriously, uh, what can water for food? uh, What can UAVs do for our field here? Um, You have probably seen many articles coming up in the last six months about uh, drones or UAVs being able to revolutionize agriculture. And the idea is that you will have access to much more data uh, with an increased temporal uh, scale uh, and at a lower cost. So I thought that the best way to summarize this was actually. Uh, I, I look at t- tons of postings on this, tons of magazines, tons of uh, research articles on it, but I thought that a quote from a farmer was actually quite quite effective in capturing what, what we envision, at least in part, which is, I'm a farmer, and I would love to have a drone, okay? Uh, and I don't want you to read everything, but just, just focus on the color parts. I'm a farmer, I, w- I would love to have a drone, and the reasons why I would like to have a drone is because I can capture all this data, particularly images. That's what this particular farmer was thinking, the idea that I'm going to be able to get images more often, maybe from lower altitude, and definitely for lower cost. Okay? So that's where uh, they see the value. And this alone can cause a revolution. That's, that's what this uh, farmer anticipates. Let me give you another perspective. This per- perspective comes from our collaborators uh, in environmental engineering and uh, hydrology. Um, and what they believe is that right now they're facing a bottleneck in terms of data collection. I think uh, John talked about sending graduate students to the field, to the cornfields to capture data. Well, we're talking about uh, tens or hundreds of undergraduates going to with a little bottle into the middle of the lake and hopefully filling that bottle with water and then bringing it back to the lab for analysis. Uh, these scientists believe that this could actually reduce the cost of doing that by an order of magnitude. But most important, they will be able to capture data they cannot capture today. So runoff data, for example, we have a huge storm tonight out of the fields. Where does that water go? What chemicals does it carry? How can we tell? Well, what we envision with them, and we'll show you a little bit pieces of that vision, is actually going after that water, right after the runoff, and actually capturing a sample with it, from it. The last one, and this one came last night, and it said, sorry, Sebastian, I cannot make the talk tomorrow. This one, a collaborator in hydrology as well. And the reason is I'm I'm going 500 miles uh, or more. I'm driving 500 miles to actually be able to capture water samples. Okay, So again, a lot of people trying to capture data, and they cannot cannot do it effectively. let, this is a little bit of what people would like to see, but let's, pe- let's see what people are actually doing in the field. So the state of the practice right now, what you can do, like five of you knew, is that you can buy a crop cam vehicle, a Maneir vehicle, and what it would allow you to do is basically replace, you know, it's, it's like we always do. We get a new technology, and what do we do? We do the same thing that we did with the older technology, just a little bit cheaper. So we're using these magnificent little unmanned vehicles to replace planes. So instead of spending five, ten thousand dollars 10000 to survey our field, we spend $5,000 to buy it, and then probably a few hundred to fix it for the next two years. Okay? So everyone that I know that have bought one of these has actually faced that part. These vehicles are really great to visit certain waypoints, but they don't do some things that you would like, like automatic takeoff or automated landing, which is really important, okay? So the cost of actually maintaining these vehicles is huge. Um, But they can actually visit a lot of waypoints. They can actually, you can place different cameras on them. The the pictures that I'm showing there have been borrowed from our colleagues in East Campus, and we're collaborating with them here at at, uh, UNL with our our colleagues in agronomy. And they're using slightly different vehicles than the crop can. Those, that's an octocopter, to capture images. And they process those images in different ways. They see, you know, they try to get that plant stress. So they take different type of pictures to see the reflectivity of the leaves. They actually measure the size of some plants, like I'm showing there with the trees. They measure the diameter of the trees to see which one of them is under stress. Uh, but again, same applications as before. Uh, plus, we have some constraints policy Constraint in terms of FAA on what things can you fly, uh, and that's in the States. You know, other countries going north and south of us, everywhere else, you can fly them with more flexibility than in the States right now. So that's another boundary. Uh, but the whole point is eye in the sky. Okay? Now, let me show you one video that we got with our, college, with our colleagues in this Campus, because we wanted to know, really, what can this technology do? And since some of you are not familiar with what it can do, let me show what it can do and what limitations we see, but also what potential you see with some of the things that are already available. And this was really selfish experiments. We wanted to see how far we can get with what we knew, and what were the pending challenges. Just a second, please. So no sound on this one, so I'm just going to uh, let you watch it. But uh, this was captured in 2012. And the idea here was to fly the vehicle that Kerrick was showing on the right, the one with the eight propellers, and just go over the field. I think a few things that you can take away from it is you know, the stability of the picture, the high quality of the picture. So it's not just pictures, but actually videos. Another thing that may call your attention is the fact that we can fly really, really close to the plants. So, there may be a great opportunity where you don't have to get the airplane view, although you can, as we do here. But you can actually quickly drop to the ground or very close to the ground and examine a leaf of a plant. Okay? You can get that close. And you can hold it there. So, that's another beauty about this. Uh, These rotary planes is that you don 't have wings so you don 't have to keep moving in the air. you can actually stay at a certain location for a while if you 're interested in it. So think about having the ability to pin a camera in the sky that 's what you can do with this technology and those, uh, those were our colleagues uh, that were a little bit amazed that we were going to that we were able to do that, and that was um, that's a, that was further that where the technology is today, what I just showed you. In terms of the quality of the image, the ability to get close to the ground, that's further than the state of the practice. So let me show you uh, another one. This was an effort that we undertook with uh, people in East Campus as well uh, with um, um, Natural Resources uh, faculty members. And the idea here was to, uh, following up on the first talk, investigate we want to focus on the river and actually in the environment that surrounded uh, the Platte River and just get an idea of you know, what were the chances of us actually capturing data that is useful for scientists and what interactions we may have with the environment. Particularly, there were a lot of swallows there. So we wanted to see what they, what they thought about us, us being the drones, the mean drones. So take a look at this. Um, We've, we, we learned a lot during that day. First of all, there are a lot of ticks next to the Platte River. <laughs> um, but there were some technical, technical parts as well. So one of the interesting parts is that, uh, well, this is the aerial view. So again, about 350 feet in the air, looking down. This is the, the camera, this is on a swivel. So it can actually change angles in, in many ways. We know exactly where we are. We have a GPS location. And we know the angle of the vehicle, so we know exactly what the picture is taking. That's a bridge, uh, um, the, the, the walk bridge on top of, a, uh, on top of the uh, Blood River. Um, we did not. I know the, the, the question that we often get is do we lose a drone in this, uh, in this effort? We did not. We did not. But I think the most fascinating part is those little black dots that you see around us. I don't know if you can see it on the back, but let, let me let me try this. Oops, let let me try this again. Maybe maybe I shouldn't have tried this. But if you can actually pay attention to the little black dots that you see, those are the swallows, and we're flying among hundreds of them, hundreds of them. So they didn't feel threatened by the drone, by the noise or the propellers or anything. And what you see now is one of the cameras that. Is capturing pictures from the river is actually pointing to the drone that you see flying there. Okay, the cool thing about that is that obviously the drone can capture images from many locations, so the flexibility, the mobility. So, for example, we could capture these nests under the river, and we did capture with high quality one of the birds getting out of the nest. So you can imagine Mary, the one, the faculty member, the faculty member doing research in this area. She was. Um, extremely pleased to have these these views that were hard to get, um, or at least you didn't know about them. So again, we're flying in the middle of the, of, the, of, the, of the birds. As long as we came from below, the birds were not scared. When we came from above, and they thought we were prey, we were predator, then that's where they flew away. Again, uh, interesting to learn, but, but besides the beautiful views, I think one of the things to take away is Close and close, very close interactions with nature, these small vehicles are non-threatening at least to these type of, this type of uh, birds. And, uh, and they discovered that it led. So uh, the particular scientist that we were working with was, had 300 other ideas on what you would like to do with the drones. But still, this is just capturing pictures, maybe capturing high-quality images that the state of the practice cannot do. But let, let me go back to my original, to our original vision. And actually, this, we started this as a joke, but actually there's, there are two cool things to take away from here. One is that the state of the practice is not yet being able to take high quality images. We did that, but the state of practice is not there. But we want to do more than that. You know, taking pictures, filming is great, but how about if you could actually interact with the environment? And we start towards this road of interaction by being able to sample things. So we don't want to just take a picture. The picture is a form of sampling. But what we want to do is we want to be able to, for example, cut a leaf, put some water, take some water. And what we're going to show is our vision to get uh, towards that. So perhaps a bigger vision is involves a few components. So involves an end user, the one with a pickup here, um, that has a bunch of drones, maybe a swarm of these small drones, because they're not, they're, they're going to be—they're lowering price every day, and they're pretty affordable already. Uh, in the back of a pickup, we also have a very easy interface to actually manipulate those drones. You don't want to have a team of people operating them. Um, we want to be able to sample—maybe cut a leaf from a corn plant. We want to be able to get an air sample. We want to be able to get a water sample, and that's really really hard. I'm setting you up, Garrick. Uh, but. But we are very, very, very close to be able to achieve these type of things. Um, and we, we want to be able to do this without you having to worry about whether a drone fails or not fails. We want to be able to have the redundancy so that if a drone is running out of batteries or is failing, it gets replaced by another one independent, you know, right away. That is, there's this transparency where you said what data you want to capture, you said what you want, but not how you want it. The how is implemented by the system. Okay. So it's more of a declarative approach. You say, this is the data I need. But not, how, what waypoints do I need to get to that data? We'll figure that out. That's, that's what we envision. So now I'm going to tell you about three projects that gets us towards this vision that we're taking. And this is a little more technical part of the talk. But what we want is, we want higher levels of autonomy to increase success rate. We believe if we let, if we ask, for a farmer or a scientist to become a pilot, or full-fledged pilot, this is not going to take off. Okay? So we want increased levels of autonomy. We want these vehicles to be able to do more. We want the capabilities to interact with the environments, like I show you, watering a plant, clipping a leaf. We want higher reliability to lower the cost. So right now, the cost of buying one is not that much, but the reliability is low, so crashes are common. And we want safety. If I'm going to have someone walking next to one of these, I want them to be safe. I want stopping you, as a user, from, making, from introducing a coordinate 0,0. zero because the coordinate zero, 0,0, latitude and longitude, is going to be in the Atlantic Ocean somewhere. So how do I stop you from doing that, from putting the wrong coordinates to visit? So all those things are things that we're working on to uh, make them safer. And that's what we're going to talk about a little bit more. So the first achievement that, that we have is the idea that we are able to operate reliably under unplanned conditions or unpredictable conditions. And this case, to these two pictures. So imagine now that you have a pickup, but, and, and you have these UAVs maybe on the back or maybe on the top of your car, but you don't want to stop. You really want this UAV to take off next to the road and then land on your vehicle later. You don't want to worry, worry about how it does it. But you want to make sure that it does it right all the time. Landing on a moving vehicle, even our best pilots have a really hard time doing that. We have been able to achieve that autonomously already. So this, this has been our first breakthrough. Now, a lot of people can write code to land one of these autonomously. Fewer people can do it on a moving vehicle. Our breakthrough has really been the idea that we can do this with a high success rate. And um, let me tell you what's the secret for that. Um, the secret for, for this technology is really the idea that we let you show us what you have done many times well, we capture that, and then we constrain the behavior of a vehicle so that it only operates in known conditions. That means that the UAV can do 3,000 things, but if you have only done 100 things in the UAV in the past, and you think that captures the set of activities that you want to accomplish, We're going to monitor the system. And when you depart from this normal envelope of activities, we're going to say, no, we cannot do that. So that's the essence, the intuitive essence of what we're doing. We're synthesizing, learning what is normal, and then enforcing that normality during field operations. So let me show you what, what this is. This is just a very short video, but let me show you what we're doing. There are three elements here. One is the quad rotor that you have seen. The other one is a moving platform. This moving platform is not a pickup. It's a Roomba, OK? It's a Roomba that it, it goes in all random directions. It's like this vacuum cleaner that some of you may have uh, and, and that you may pretend that it keeps your living room clean <laughs> while doing it. Um, so we have these two things. And the idea is that we want to reliably land on this platform. And we're going to train the system with a lot of good landings in normal conditions. Normal conditions is in our lab with a flat floor, no wind, no strenuous things happening. The platform is solid, but it's moving all the time. So we're going to train it on that. And we're going to capture data of what this means. From that data, we're going to capture or infer invariance, what we call invariance. This is what would happen normally under under unplanned conditions. So that's a huge fan that throws a lot of wind. And in most cases, this UAV with high wind is going to crash, land off the platform. Now with the monitor, it's going to avoid landing under under high wind conditions. And look at now. It's going to basically abort landing and do a takeoff again. Whoop, it moved away. Takeoff. So it's not going to land unless it knows it can land safely on the moving platform. Because that's what we learn. And we're enforcing that. Now that it's far from the fan, I can land successfully on it. This is the case with a broken platform. We actually took one of the the legs out of the platform so that it bends. Now with the monitor, as soon as it bends, we're going to detect something was wrong, and we're going to take off again. And we're going to try it again. And again, until we feel that the conditions are safe for you to land. Whoop, not safe anymore. Okay, we're going to take off again. It was a very specific spot on the platform that you could land and it wouldn't break. That was right on the single length that it had. And our approach was able to do that. Not yet, not yet. Now, what you can see, though, is that we're taking longer. We're, We're making landing safe on the moving platform. Extreme, extremely challenging problem. The neat thing about it is that the general approach about learning, capturing that into a monitor, and dropping that into a UAV is a process that we have automated. So you can do this for all kinds of things, not just for the moving platform. Again, this case to the autonomy and the reliability of these vehicles. So some findings out of this study. We increased the success rate from 10 to 80, over 80 percent. So perhaps not enough to have one next to your, you know, nightstand running every night, but for these unexpected conditions, that's a huge success uh, improvement in the success rate of landing. So the two graphs that you see here, the green lines point to the conditions that you learn you should stay within these bounds. This is a very simple set of conditions. The top one without a monitor, it gets out of those conditions and it keeps going until it crashes. It attempts to land and it crashes. The bottom one, it will abort landing, get back into normal conditions. Abort landing, get back into normal conditions until it finds a time that it can land successfully. So longer time to approach it. So we're doing a trade-off here. But we are increasing reliability by doing so. Now, what it's pending is, what do we do in general, once we find that you got outside this envelope of reliability. So right now, we are avoiding or delaying landing. But in general, what do you want to do if you find that something is wrong? Perhaps go home? Perhaps you know, stay high in the sky? How do we actually come up with those, those remedial actions to solve these potential failures? Uh, and that's where we're looking at now. Here.
8: Still more. <laughs> um, so, Sebastian talked about you know, how we're actually you know, getting these. We want to make them safer, reliable. Um, now, and in that overview picture, you may have seen that you know, we had a lot of UAVs flying around there. Well, it's not just UAVs that we're interested in, because as you saw before with John's work, uh, you know, we know that the farms of the future are going to have a lot of sensors all over the place. And one of the challenges is, you know, how do you power these systems? So you can, uh, the approach John has taken, which is, cer- is critical, is to have the, um, you know, the sensors themselves be very smart in how they're using their energy. Um, the other approach that we've been working on is actually developing a wireless power transfer system that can have the UAV bring energy to remote locations to recharge sensors. So the idea here is that, you know, if you have, lots of sensors out in the field or perhaps you know, over rivers or in the water monitoring water quality and growth, um, you can actually send the UAV out to collect data from, from the sensors, but also recharge them. And so this is a project we've, we've been working on. And, and uh, so I'll show you a short video. And basically what you see here is um, you see this light kind of moving around. And what's over there is actually a UAV flying on top of it and is wirelessly transferring power to, in this case, light up a light. The idea here is that you know, the UAV can uh, fly around and actually charge, charge sensors, collect data from it. And what this will enable is, you know, so if, if you look over here, what's the biggest thing? Okay, so this is a big camera, but it also has this big solar panel. Well, with this type of system, you can remove the solar panel from these types of sensors and in, and put them in dark you know hidden places where you know currently you 'd have to put long wires to charge them and we can remove the solar panel because instead we can actually use the UAV to transfer the power and so we've had good success with this and you can see. Um, I won't go into the details, but we've characterized how the kind of the relationship between how far you are away from the sensor and how much energy you can transfer. And one of the things we're working on right now is how you can can you know if you don't have GPS, if you're under a bridge or you know GPS won't be accurate enough, how you can actually figure out based on how you're transferring the power where the sensor is. So you could actually think about the case with the, the buried sensors where you, you know, maybe you don't remember exactly where you buried it, but you could fly over the ground. And based on, on monitoring how you're transferring power, you can detect where those sensors are and then lock onto them and transfer power to them. So this is really you know, some of the integration with the sensors that we're going to have deployed in the fields and the UAVs. And again, this is really bringing the UAVs into the environment, getting closer, interacting, taking advantage of the hovering capabilities of these types of systems. Now, another success we've had that Sebastian has been alluding to throughout the talk is actually uh, doing autonomous water sampling. So what we have here, it's actually this vehicle here, is a UAV that we've added a lot of devices and sensors to be able to autonomously collect water samples. So the idea here is that when you uh, wanna go out and you know, our, our collaborator, She's you know, driving 500 miles today to go to, I don't know, how many different sites to collect water samples. Well, that's you know a lot of labor. It's very involved. So instead, what we have here is a UAV that has three small vials of water. It has this pump on the end. And basically, you can go and collect the water samples. Now, OK, so the biggest challenge here is keeping this thing dry. Because it certainly does not like to land in water. And so, a lot of the research challenges that we're addressing is how to to use the unreliable sensors in challenging conditions to reliably stay out of the water and just have the pump in the water. Um, so I'll show you a, a video now of um, actually just just this past week. Uh, so we've done a lot of tests in the lab. We've had. Um, over 100 samples collected in the lab. And you can see we have a nice fish tank to simulate our, um, our river or lake here. And what you see here is that the UAV is going to the location above the fish tank where we have the opening and drops down, gets this little pump that we have, this micro pump at the end of, end of the tube in the water, and then can pump water up to fill these vials. So we can take three independent samples with our current system and we have a purge phase in between so it goes to a new location it runs the pump water spills out for a while and then we've purged the system so we know that we're getting a clean sample and fill this the vial and we can you know then bring it back and really the idea here is that instead of you know bringing your kayak out to the lake paddling okay that's fun but when you do it you know for 12 hours a day you don't want to do that um, instead, you can send this out in you know, 10 minutes, collect three samples along the lake. You know, maybe you don't even need to get out of your car. You can just, uh, again, drive up, um, collect the samples, and have it come back to you, and go to the next, next site. And this has the real potential to save a lot of time and effort, and also to enable new things, so be able to, to collect you know, 100 samples within a day after a rainfall event. And here you can see um, the, the first outdoor tests where we, we were actually outside collecting samples. Um, we had actually a lot of people who were just walking by interested in what we were doing. Um, but, you know, so this is, this is work that, we're, that we have uh, high hopes for in actually being able to get out into the field, collect these water samples. And this is really you know, where these, these vehicles, where we think they're, they're moving, where you have much more interaction with the environment. And so we've successfully tested this extensively indoors, hundreds of samples. Uh, we're just starting now that the weather, now that the snow has stopped, uh, we're getting outside to collect outdoor samples and test it. Um, some of the critical challenges, of course, are how you deal with waves and wind and um, we're doing that by having a, a wide range of sensors. So we have um, a pressure sensor that acts as an alt- altimeter on board, but that, you know, gusts of winds or pressure changes cause huge changes in that. So we also have ultrasound sensors that are range finders so that we can get ranges, but we have multiple of those for redundancy. And we also have conductivity sensors so that we know when the hose is in the water or when it's in too deep and we really need to abort. And Actually, we're really excited because we just found out yesterday that the NSF and USDA decided to fund this project. Uh, so, so we're going to be continuing working on this with collaborators on East Campus and uh, UC Berkeley. Um, so back to kind of the system overview, our vision. Uh, you know, we showed you kind of three, three sub pieces to this, this overall goal, uh, the, most the water sampling, the wireless charging, also, how you can enable safer and more reliable, you know, docking back on the on your moving vehicle to really make this easy. Um, so I'm going to now talk about three, three or four other um, kind of research thrusts that we're working on currently that are a little earlier stage. So one thing is a lot of what we've talked about is you know the systems and software and how to make it easier. Well, another critical part of that is the interface for the user. You don't. If you buy you know, the, the commercial vehicles that allow you to do a lot of this aerial imaging, the software is very complex. It's very easy to forget to check a box, to, and, and as a result, it'll, your vehicle will crash, and then you spend the next week fixing it. Um, so one of the things we're looking at is you know, just making a real simple uh, interface that provides the capabilities that the scientists and uh, agronomists need. Um, but also is checking the safety so that you're not, not concerned that you're going to press the wrong button, that you're going to say, say, land when you're over water, that you know, when it's over water, it knows it's over water, and it knows it's not safe to land. So we're working on developing you know, an app for your phone where uh, you know, one of the things is you can just say, okay, follow me, and it'll follow you. So when you're walking out you know, down the road, you don't have to carry these in your backpack. You can just say, come along with me, and it'll follow you. Uh, you know, you press another button, and it'll go collect aerial images. You know, you press another button, uh, it'll come back to you and land, and maybe another one to go collect water samples. Um, but you know, the goal is to really reduce the the chance that the user is going to, you know, have a erroneous action, and you know, by in part making a very simple interface and an interface that that is actually doing this a lot of work in the background, checking the software, checking the system state, uh, and trying to, to uh, create a safer system that way. Now, another thing you notice in that picture is we talked about having many UAVs. So on the right here, you can see uh, a picture where we had three UAVs flying together. Um, I don't know that we'll ever get to the left there, that picture of a swarm of birds. But certainly, we want to have many of these vehicles available. So. You know, you have your crop consultant may have you know a dozen of these on the back of the truck. Drive up to a field, kind of sketch out the the desired outcomes. You know, where you need images, where you need water samples, uh, where you need to you know have close inspection of the crops, and then the system would just decide which vehicles need to go out. They may all have different payloads, different sensors, different types. You can see. You know the wide range of vehicles we have here, and you know we envision this where you have all of these working together at the same time. Moreover, you know when the battery is low, it can actually just come back, recharge. The user might not even need to know that that happened because another one will just take off, and the battery will be switched or charged. Uh, so, so we're also working on on this and you know getting the, kind of these heterogeneous multi-robot systems out in the field. Um, Another project we're working on, again with the theme of getting closer into the environment, is actually being able to measure crop height. So our our collaborators basically, you know, especially um, the our collaborators who are working on phenotyping and genotyping of these crops. Um, They're interested in the rate of growth of these crops as well as some of the other parameters. Well, currently it's, you know, again, send out the the undergrads with their poles into the field. And okay, you might be able to send them out once a week, um, but even that might be pushing it. Instead, what we're working on is actually using one of the UAVs to go out, fly over the crops, use sensors. Now, it's a, actually a very challenging problem because our, you know, over the rolling hills and you know, without really expensive uh, equipment, we don't know exactly how high we are. So one of the challenges is, is actually trying to peek between the plants to occasionally see the ground so that we can use that to measure the height. And you can see on the right there actually some preliminary results kind of with this uh, uh, laser scanner showing kind of plants and the, the heights where you can see the tops of the plants and, the, and the, the ground between them. And so this is where we're another project we're headed towards to you know, give you more information, again, on you know, the health of, of crops. Another application is actually doing aerial weed killing. Now, certainly, you know, this little vehicle is not going to be able to spray many crops, and even the biggest ones won't be able to, you know, spray your whole field. But perhaps you have, you know, a very selective area where you're, you know, you're uncertain if that's a what type of weed it is or if there's some problems in a particular area well you could send out the UAV both to identify that there are weeds in that area or some some anomalous growth and then you could also have it you know spray do a test spray with a particular you know herbicide and or insecticide and and test and then you could go back the next day and see the results and this could serve as a way to uh, you know test is the the proposed treatment actually going to work, and you can do this on a small scale, but you don't have to go out there and walk through your field to find each individual weed. You can send the vehicle out to do that. Now, from our perspective, we're also interested in, you know so doing this precisely. so you know you don't want to uh, you know spray the wrong thing. Um, and you may also want to consider other environmental parameters. So if it's really windy, you don't want to just be spraying because it's going to blow off. Or maybe if it's windy, you have to get really close before you can spray. So again, this is into creating these semi-autonomous systems that can really interact and sense the environment and know when it's safe to do the, the task. Um, and uh, I guess I'll ask Sebastian to come up again and kind of summarize here. But. All right.
7: Um. Well, like we said, we're very happy to be here. Um, We just, you know, I guess if uh, a couple of take-home messages from this talk are that, you know, UAVs come in all shapes and forms and uh, users, and uh, um, and uh, even even if uh, if you don't want them to, they're going to be finding their place into agriculture and science. That's happening already Um, now we believe that these steps are just the beginning. And we're trying to push the technology to the point that it's not just capturing pictures and videos, things that you can do with your phone if you could make it fly, right? Uh, if you throw your phone high enough, you may be able to do the same things. We want to go further than that. We want to be able to manipulate and interact with the environment. We want to be able to do things that are uh, that, that require a lot of interaction with the environment and uh, also some level of uh, of increased participation of the users on the parts where the user can provide the domain, the, you know, the, the expertise in the domain. For the rest, we want these UAVs to be autonomous as much as possible, and that's what, what we're trying to push forward. So I think that's that's all we have, and uh, and if you have questions about any of the technical details that we obviated, that we basically skipped, we would be happy to talk to you about nuts and bolts and, uh, as well after the talk. Thank you. Are there any questions? Just
0: a few minutes of questions, just to okay. talk and then we'll see. Okay, uh, any,
7: any questions? How much would it cost? Well, uh, the, the diversity is the key. $50. Uh, the one that I showed on the first slide, in the hundreds of millions. So the ones that we're talking about here are in the thousands, after probably tens of thousands. Um, the, the, um, the things that you can do right now with all of the shelves, like with the Falcon over there, um, with this vehicle that Kerrick showed at the beginning, is probably around $20,000. Uh, and you can do a lot of the imaging that we showed before. And you can do this off the shelf, pretty much. So. Um, if you wanna, if you wanna do something more like pictures, like I said before, um, the technology is not there today to do that. So, um, if you wanna do something like, like this, is a water sampler that they were showing before with a pump at the bottom, uh, which we're super proud of, obviously, as you can probably tell. Um, this piece of this piece of equipment is is something that you would not, you would not find out there. And even with the Falcon, some of the stuff that we are doing to fly it autonomously as part of a swarm or anything like that, that's not something that you can get commercially. But diversity is what you need to keep in mind. Yep.
4: Uh, My name is Don Nelson. I'm from Lincoln. I serve on a utility board. And I spend a fair amount of my time talking to customers of our utility who are frightened by advanced technologies to the extent that most of them are contemplating denying us access to upgrade their metering, so-called smart metering. My question is this, obviously you will be developing at the same time, there are a group of citizens who are very concerned about the use of this technology, even by their neighbors, much less themselves. Do you have colleagues in the behavioral sciences that are working on that problem, while you're working on this problem,
7: Kerry, okay, do you want to? We can answer that in a couple of parts. Yeah. So um, I
8: think so. Yes, we are working a lot with um, some colleagues in journalism and um, you know political science and other other areas. I think one thing is that there's there is this kind of misperception when you hear drone. Most people think of the Predators bombing in Afghanistan. And that's very different from what we're likely to see see in the U.S. At least, you know, minus the you know, maybe perhaps law enforcement use or or definitely military-sized ones. I mean, the reality is is that if you wanted to commercially fly this little vehicle, for whatever reason, the FAA currently prevents that. And in part, that's because of a lot of these uh, concerns about privacy. Um, but I'm not too concerned because I mean certainly you know these vehicles okay you could fly over your neighbor's house but i can also look out my window and see into my neighbor's window and yard as well and these aren't going to be things these types of vehicles are not vehicles where you can fly you know 10 miles away and and you know and be there and take take pictures of of things so as i'm i'm not too concerned about that although certainly you know the rules and regulations need to catch up i think there's a danger though in preventing the adoption of this type of technology that can certainly have a huge impact on, on you know, in this context, agriculture and water and food. I mean, for, okay, so you might be able to, to you know, t- survey your, your quarter or your square uh, area, but you're not gonna be uh, flying over your neighbor's uh, farms to report it, in part because you know, it costs to fly and
7: the potential for damage. You know, I, I have a similar view, maybe uh, just a slightly different answer. <laughs> so part of this talk, part of our goal through this talk was to try to demystify this, this idea, as you and the utility board, maybe you can help us out in that regard, in that uh, these are not all the same. They're not all built with the same purpose. Um, I don't know how many of you have a phone with a camera, but I would guess probably 95% of you do. Uh, that's a higher risk to your privacy than any of these right now, your cell phone with your camera. Uh, and yet, we use them all the time. So I think, I think the equation in terms of cost privacy is going to come down to something along those lines as well eventually. Uh, from our perspective, technically, what we're trying to do with the people from, let's say, political science, is we're trying to see whether we cannot provide the social or behavioral you know, uh, responses to that but we're working with them to see whether technology can provide some answers. In this regard, one, one thing that we're particularly interested about is, can we encode constraints about what these things can do? Can we actually encode them as part of these boards so that they're smart enough not to take pictures outside of the areas, for example, that you, that you are allowed to take? So these, are, these, are, these technical solutions are not all the answers, but that's kind of what we're thinking about is can you encode these notions of policies, privacy, anything you want, so that they can only do what you would do if you would be you know, flying, let's say, with a, with a piloted vehicle. Any, any other question? Or I don't know, Steve, how do you want to manage? I think there's one
9: more over there.
4: I was wondering about the relationship between the, uh, the payload weight and the, the cost of the device. Um, one particular application in mind, and I, it sounds like you're up to your ears in applications already. But um, uh, airborne geophysics, you know, is a is a promising new tool for geologic mapping, hydrologic mapping, and the, the pinch point on the cost is often the uh, the cost of the helicopter uh, time.
8: So, what's the weight you're looking at, or
9: <laughs> Jesse? What's what's the weight? Of, um uh, I mean,
4: 100 pounds, maybe.
8: Yeah. So. So uh, we're not going there for the 100 pounds. So certainly you know, the Predators, you know, the really huge scale ones, they do, they have large payloads. Um, you know, the ones we're working with here uh, can carry a little over a pound or so. And I think the, you know, this type of vehicle is nice because it's, it's safe. You know, sure, it hurts when the propellers hit you, but you're not gonna lose a finger or worse. Um, so these are very safe to operate, very easy to operate, and I think you know in that realm for the you know easy scientific use, um, you know you're going to be limited to the one or two pound type of range. Um, of course, for larger uh, you know surveys or larger projects, um, you know you can certainly get larger vehicles. They just start to get more expensive again.
7: I, th- I think there's a, there's a question of cost, there's also a question of, I mean, there are a few trade-offs. There, there are commercial vehicles that would allow you to do that. They are, you know, um, they are not battery-based, It would be gas-based. I think we can talk offline, maybe maybe we can point you in some directions that there are vehicles that, that maybe you could look at to, to address that. It's just that uh, more weight means... Um, be propellers, think about it that way. And uh, and that and, means high risk in general. And often it means you need a runway to take off or you
8: know, a large clearing. So that's the other trade-off to consider. Thank you.
0: Okay, I, I'd like all of the speakers to come up to the table here. And we're gonna try, I don't know how this will work. So it depends upon you and whether there's value in this. This is sort of an open panel question and answer session. You've heard all three talks, ranging from things, research, and, and products that are under the ground, technology that's capturing amazing images on the surface and transmitting those images through cyberspace to your home via your computer, and then aerial vehicles capturing various types of data. And so they. One can imagine connections between the projects, but you may also have questions about a specific project. And so this is sort of an open question and answer forum, and you can ask a question of any one of the speakers. um we've We've got all six. and and the speakers range as if you've looked in their bios from you know across the spectrum. there There are three or four people that are computer scientists, we've got we've got artists and and you we've got a range of spectrum here. so we'll get a lot of interesting answers, I think.
9: We'll start over here with the question. David Quinta, I'm from Lincoln. Um, this probably is directed mostly at Michael Forsberg, but I think it applies across the board. Um, when you take your conventional photographs and put them out there, they often would seem to inspire people to go experience that out of doors, uh, have that experience for themselves. I think what you guys have done is brilliantly elegant and. Phenomenal in its potential implications for user-driven research, just as I think the, the last presentation has tremendous opportunities. My question is a bit philosophical. Do you think that moving into that more time-lapse world, the virtual experience, uh, to some degree Disneylands that out-of-doors and creates a substitute experience for people? as opposed to drawing them into that sphere?
2: Yeah, thank you for that, David. That's a great question. In fact, I've been sitting here the last few hours thinking about that. It's like Star Trek and the holodeck, right? You know? Um, and I think there is a danger here. We have to remember, this is a tool session. It's not, I don't think any of us are advocating replacing people with technology. It's, it's using technology in a way that helps endear us and, and discover and to, and to um, learn more about um, this planet, you know, in a way that we haven't been able to before. And hopefully it inspires people to get out there. There is no replacement, you know, we always talk about being there when, you know, it being there when we're not, but it should never ever replace us going out in the field. Um, we can't engineer ourselves out of all of these problems. Um, that we've created for ourselves here, and if we don't, if we don't believe that and don't believe this place in our hearts, we don't, we, if we don't feel it here first, then it doesn't matter um, what other things we figure out. You know, it's a, it, it, it's a, it's a great question, and I'm, I'm glad you, I'm glad you led with it. And perhaps other folks on the panel here have something to offer with well, that. I could add a little something to that. Um,
1: <clears throat> when we're developing the next generation of this website, we hope to have user-generated imagery. On a separate mapping uh, uh, page other than what we're doing, so we're trying to encourage uh, citizen input and, and citizen input can come in a number of ways. people can, can post a story about something they saw they can post photographs that they've made uh, time lapse technology is now getting down in cost where we hope to inspire people to do their own time lapses and post those so I think you know uh, part of this is the idea that you can do it too we've used expensive equipment we have a lot of money but that doesn't mean that you can't do it or a school uh, class couldn't do it.
3: I think a really important thing to think about with technology and we certainly spent a lot of time thinking about it with software is this idea that technology needs to be transparent and so it, it augments an experience as opposed to replaces an experience. And, and you know, I think that, that broadly speaking, you can say that about any technology, but specifically when you look at software, we, software developers and good software developers spend a lot of time working with users, working with people that are gonna, gonna be impacted by the technology figure out, okay, how is it that we allow this to create a better experience, but at the same time, just completely get out of the way and, and not uh, not take over the experience? And, you know, And so I, say, I would say that transparency in technology tends to be a very, very important thing, it should be a transparent thing within the experience.
7: Let me take a different cut at it. Um, I think there are different types of experiences and I think there are some experiences that you don't want people to have and you want robots autonomously to do. So there are things that are either dangerous or very monotonous that can have dire consequences because of the monotony people tend to make mistakes. I think when you are referring to you know, Michael's work, that's, that's, on the, that's one side, which is you know, beauty and appreciation uh, of, of nature. But there are some things that we're not good at. And actually, um, we shouldn't be doing them if we can have a machine doing it for us.
5: Thank you. One thing I can add is uh, on the break, I was talking to uh, an agronomist. And he told me it's a great work. Uh, although it'll take me out of my job. Um, but I don't have that view, and i share that with them. Um, imagine how many hours people spend uh, on the fields, agronomists, collecting data, and how many hours they're uh, maybe wasting that time is, uh, compared to what they can do with their expertise on the data that has been collecting. So um, the technologies that they're developing are, I believe, making things easier for us to focus on the more important things than the more uh, regular data collection things that can be done with these technologies.
0: Any other questions? One of the things that I thought about as as I was listening to the talks was there was a bit of a theme talked of course by some of the computer scientists but it's a lot of data. And one of the fears that people have uh, was raised by the um, talking about power meters is the collection of this data and the information that we, we give up with that. There's some privacy concerns, but just the management of the data. If we thought about the collecting data from uh, a, a swarm, or I would probably say a flock of these uh, aerial vehicles collecting data, or the underground water sensors, or the imagery that we have with the, the still photography, it's a lot of information that has to be managed. And if We, we have to think two sides of that. One is the tool side, and that's what we're focusing on here, is the, the technology that could, could weave these things together. But the other is the ethics. And that gets to the the question gets to the ethics of you know, how can this be used? And people's fear is it will be used against them. And that's that's always the case with every every technology. And I think Michael described it well, it's just a tool. How we use that is important. And and Sebastian, I think earlier said we all have cell phones in our pocket and and they have cameras on them and and imagine. My greatest fear when I first thought of that was, was teenagers in schools going through the locker rooms with, with photo, you know, cameras all the time, right? Those fears haven't materialized, but, but it's a real possibility. Um, I was curious for the panel was, you know, for Ian, thinking about the photography, the, the images you've put together, can that be extended with some of the sensor data from these other places? For example, the, the, we had the still life photography uh, fo- the camera by the bridge within the plat, and we had the UAV collecting data there. We could imagine other sensors underground along monitoring that. Can that be weaved together with this, the version of the website that you've built? Or is that maybe a second or third generation? What's the challenge in doing something like that?
3: Well, so the, the, the challenge is, and I'll come back to the privacy thing, because I think it's a really interesting point. But I, I think that the, the, the biggest challenge in terms of, of dealing with big data is, is noise. And so we find that uh, really nice, clean what we would call as a computer science data, data sets like uh, you know, financial data, stock data. It's very clean. I have you know records for every single price change for you know massive amounts of time. There are no holes in that data, so I don't have to make any inferences. When you start talking about you know things like climate data and other natural data, the biggest challenge that I have faced in trying to integrate these in a number of different ways is making sense of noise. So you know when you talk about climate like rain specifically. So if you look at rainfall data, well it may rain in my backyard, not my front yard. And it's really, really tough to get the kind of resolution you need to make good decisions with the data. So in terms of, of challenges, I think that the biggest challenge is integrating all of the available data sets to provide a, a comprehensive and I think really importantly an accurate picture of, of what's going on relative to the other kind of data that you're looking at. Accuracy tends to be important, particularly when we talk about this in the context of decision support systems. You know, We, we don't want to start feeling like the, the data and the tools that we have are, are a crutch or an excuse to make poor decisions. And, and if you don't have accurate Data and you're relying on the technology, you, you can end up making some fairly significant mistakes that, that have have a, a significant impact. In terms of the site that we developed, the, the site was designed to incorporate other data sets. So the data that we have in there now are uh, are, are what we did initially. If we end up getting our, our follow-up grant, we'll incorporate more data sets. But the technology is sort of generic now. We, we took the the steps to make sure that we can add data initially. I think that the the third and fourth generations are you know what is it that we add to the to the system, but it's normalized in such a way we can add all kinds of other data. um I, I just say really briefly because I think data privacy is a big deal, and I you know you hear a lot of people talking about things like Google Glass, and there's a lot of people freaking out, I think unnecessarily. and, and I would say that when we talk about ethics and uh, and you know, policy around technology. I think education is something that a lot of times we don't spend, spend much time talking about and we assume, okay, we have to have a policy for this. We have to have rules. You know, just simply educating people on what's, what technology exists and how it can be used, I think goes a long way to reduce fears and, and allow people to, to make good and ethical decisions with, with technology. So education's a very, very important thing.
0: Any other questions? Okay. I think we have lunch waiting for us, so I think we'll wrap up this session. Thank you.